Pinder and Steinberg in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Gentlemen, please remind me to immediately start looking for new work if Kelly Kirsch ever gives me a vote of confidence. If, if Kirsch ever fires off an email to us and say, oh yeah, Pat's, Pat's fine. He's, uh, he's in great shape. No need to worry about Pat's job. Just encourage me to go look for new work. Because it seems like in any line of work, if you get that vote of confidence, it's actually the exact opposite of that. Now, I understand. Usually when somebody has to come out and give a vote of confidence, it means that things aren't going so well. Like, usually if you're winning a bunch of cups or a bunch of president's trophies, you know, usually people aren't asking about the future of the head coach. So that's why it seems like any time a GM or an owner gives somebody a vote of confidence that, uh, you know, it's not that long until afterwards they're fired. Because usually when that vote of confidence is given, the team isn't doing so well. But I don't know if it's usually two weeks between. That's exactly what we saw today in Buffalo. I was not expecting to wake up and see Jason Botterill fired by the Buffalo Sabres. Fired today after being told that he will return next season. Kim Pagula, uh, one of the two owners of the Buffalo Sabres, well, the the, the wife of of Terry Pagula and uh, the VP of the Buffalo Sabres, comes out last week, says he will return next season. That is what we found out two weeks ago. I remember asking Chris Johnston a question about it, and we were like, okay, well, Jason Botterill's back, going to continue the the plan that he has enacted, whether you think it's successful or not, going back to May of 2017. And, Kleiner, I don't necessarily disagree with the decision to go in a different direction from Botterill because I don't think he's done a significantly strong job at the helm. It's more about saying he's coming back two weeks ago. Like, coming out publicly, Kim Pagula says he's coming back to, uh, two weeks ago. And they fire him two weeks later. It's not even like there's been hockey played in the last two weeks. And then they replace him a guy, replace him with a guy who has zero general manager experience. It's not even like they had an AGM waiting in the wings who was one of the up-and-comers or they had somebody who was out of work with plenty of GM experience waiting in the wings. Kevin Adams was a, a decent NHLer, but he has two years as an assistant coach like seven years ago. And he has no hockey personnel management experience to speak of. And this is the guy they replace Jason Botterill with. It just, again, in a bubble, going in a different direction from Botterill, yeah, I could see why that makes sense. In the world that is the farce of the Buffalo Sabres, however, it's a little harder to understand what exactly they're doing and what direction they're going. I mean, even in a year when they're letting almost anyone into the playoffs in the NHL, 24 teams are going to have a realistic shot of making the playoffs this year. Even Montreal and Chicago are getting this lifeline to maybe be a playoff team. Even then, Buffalo couldn't make the cut. This organization is kind of a joke, and and the clown show continues with the news of today. Yeah, and the the thing that I don't get about this whole situation is, like you said before, nothing's changed. Like, it's not even just like, oh, well, they were 500 for a little bit. But, like, did he have a background on a Zoom meeting that didn't fit what the Buffalo Sabres are trying to do? Like, there's there's nothing he could have done in the last two weeks or really even the last three months that would say, okay, now is the time we need to make this change. And for sure... Yeah, got a bit of time to do a bit of a GM search, to, to need to rush out. Like, I'm, I'm going to suggest 
all due respect to, to all parties involved, Kevin Adams is probably going to be available two weeks from now. Like, if, if you wanted to do even a bit more of an extensive sh- uh, search, I think the guy is going to be there. So I, this one makes absolutely no sense to me. Do, do I think Botterill has done an, an all right job? No. Like, the team sucks. Their star player is very unhappy with the direction of the franchise. So things probably need to change. I just don't get why it needed to be today. Like, what what in-depth knowledge have they picked up over the last couple of weeks that would lead us to, to this decision today? Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand how how the Sabres came to this call. And again, firing Jason Botterill, something the Sabres fans have been calling for for months, weeks, years. They're not happy with the job that he's done. And and on top of that, the the reaction to when the Pagulas come out came out and said two weeks ago that he's coming back was was not very strong. Like people were very against that decision. But it's to do that and then to change your mind completely, not even like they demoted him. They just straight up reversed course and fired him two weeks later and replaced him with a guy. Look, I've got nothing against Kevin Adams. I listened to a good chunk of the, the Zoom call they did with the Pagulas, Ralph Kruger, and new GM Kevin Adams. I got nothing against the guy. I don't I don't know him. I know that he was a, a decent NHLer who got more than 500 NHL games in. I can't speak to him as a coach because it's been almost a decade since he coached in the league, but he was working in business operations. Like to your point, Kleiner, I think he would have been around had they, if they were like, okay, this is the internal candidate we want, but we want to go and, and see if there's maybe some external candidates that we could we, we could potentially go. Maybe they revisit Craig Conroy. Conroy was in the mix. Like, I think Craig Conroy is one of the hottest potential GM candidates out there, um, and, and he was in the mix going back a couple of years ago. I think, you know, what, what, what about Brad Pascal? Brad Pascal's been an AGM. In the, maybe they went and looked like guys like that. Conroy and Pascal, both guys who have now been AGMs for a long time, both pretty hot names on the the uh the the front burner when it comes to gm candidates elsewhere other other teams have got guys like that why didn't they go potentially knock on some doors there i it it, it's a strange one to me it really is and and i'm not i'm not uh i'm not certain if you're a sabers fan that you can be overly confident about the direction your team is going even if They've got, I believe, the right coach for the job. I, I think Ralph Kruger is 100% the right guy to be able to, to lead that team. But uh, you, still, you still have to have a direction from the top. And here's the problem. So many people have speculated that this decision by the ownership group, the decision to move away from Jason Botterill, is because there is too much pushback from the general manager. Whether he's done a good job or not, too much pushback on hockey issues, which is what he's paid to have purview over too much pushback there and there's a lot of speculation that they want somebody who will be a little more passive when it comes to them being involved in hockey operations they're the they're the billionaires the pagulas are the ones with the dough they're the ones who own the team they can do whatever the hell they want with it however if i'm a sabers fan looking at my team with nine straight years out of the playoffs having not won a playoff series in some people's lifetimes um yeah, it's uh, it, it's not a good time to be a Sabres fan, and I don't know if it really feels like it's looking up right now. Uh, I, I I know that attendance has been dropping there. That is a team that has got a rabid group of fans, and they want to love their team so bad. Just look at when they went on that 10-game win streak last season. 
not this past season, but the year before, and, and how how ramped up that place was and, and how much Sabres fans were into that. Sabres fans are awesome, and they want to have a team to cheer for, but whew, it's tough to cheer for your team right now. Well, and just look at now there's a bit of a, a format shift in the NHL with how they did divisions. But since their last postseason appearance, here's how they finished in the division. The last two years of the Northeast, third and fifth. And then since the switch to the new format with the new divisions, eighth in the Atlantic, eighth in the Atlantic, seventh in the Atlantic, eighth in the Atlantic, eighth in the Atlantic, sixth, sixth. This is a bad hockey team. And has been a bad hockey but team for be. a long time. And that is, it's such a tough market to basically drive fans away in. What we've seen with the Sabres, with the Bills. This is a fan base that will support you through thick and thin. And to be driving them away, that is just an impressive amount of incompetence, really. And to be in this situation now... If I'm a Sabres fan, I'm looking, okay, just spent uh, a bunch of money on Jeff Skinner, who didn't do a whole lot. Uh, you have a star player who doesn't really want to be there from the sounds of it, and still like $6 million in Kyle Ocposo. Like there isn't, there isn't a ton to get super excited about. And I can understand not wanting Botterill going into this fairly important offseason. It's just the, the whole thing just reeks of desperation and kind of incompetence, really. So since... Since 2012, which was the first year of this nine straight years, the Sabres have missed the playoffs. Since 2012, they've drafted 12th overall, 8th overall, 2nd overall, 2nd overall, 8th overall, 8th overall, 1st overall, and 7th overall. Every single year since the first year that they have um, missed the playoffs outside of 2012, and for the last eight drafts in a row, they've drafted inside the top eight. And... Rasmus Ristolainen is an NHLer. Sam Reinhardt's an NHLer. Um, Alexander Nylander is no longer with the organization. Casey Middlestat, we don't know. Rasmus Dahlin's in the NHL. And Dylan Cousins, we still wait on. But when you look at what this team has done with their draft picks, they haven't done enough. Yes, Jack Eichel's a superstar, and they got that right at number two in the easiest number two. Has there ever been an easier number two overall pick? Like, it was so set in stone, McDavid and Eichel were going 1-2 in 2015. Otherwise, have the Sa we'll see what Darlene turns into, but have the Sabres turned their picks into true core pieces? Like, uh, Sam Reinhardt has, has turned into a pretty decent NHLer and looks like he continues to take steps, but are we talking about a core piece that is an untouchable and that every team in the no. league would build around? Probably not. You're right. So, like, th this team has done, whether it was Jason Botterill or the GMs before him, Tim Murray, the, the final years of Darcy Regeer, so on and so forth, this team just has not been able to get out of their own way. And, and to your point, that's not an easy market to, to drive people away. And I wonder... You know, Jack Eichel has been extremely vocal over the last couple of years about how dissatisfied he is with how things have gone from a hockey standpoint. Like, if you're Eichel, how much longer can you take playing in Buffalo? You've got the hammer. Yes, you signed your long-term deal, but if you ask for a trade, they got to trade you. And if he wants out, he'll get his way out and he'll get to a spot that is a, maybe a little more conducive to winning. The guy hasn't sniffed the playoffs. Everybody talks about... Remember... Even last season, people were talking about how, well, I wonder when Connor McDavid asks, asks out of Edmonton. McDavid's at least won a playoff round, and right. he's going to get back to the playoffs this year, and things have not been rosy, and, and it has not been a largely successful tenure since McDavid entered the league. But, like, 
he looks like a three-time cup champion compared to what Eichel has done sniffing the playoffs. Guy hasn't come close. It's not a criticism on Eichel. The guy's turned into a superstar. But if I'm him and I made that commitment 10 years at $8 million, sorry, eight years at $10 million uh, to sign with the Sabres and nothing seems like it's looking up and it just continues to be a joke of a clown show, uh, when do you decide to ask out if you're him? I, I can't imagine that if it continues this way much longer, he's going to want to be there much longer. Yeah, and this is a very important offseason for the Buffalo Sabres. And we, we've said it for a little bit, even before all of this was going on. But they basically have, like, four forwards under contract going into next season. So th this is right into the fire for Kevin Adams. Because if you screw this particular offseason up, I, I think this is the last, from the sounds of it anyway, this is the last year Jack, uh, Jack Eichel is going to take any of this. And I get it's a big cap hit, but there are 30 teams in the NHL that would make it work. Oh, absolutely. Like, Jack Eichel yeah. is Jack Eichel's a franchise player that you build around, and he's only getting better. He has taken significant steps in every one of the last few seasons. He entered yeah, the he league as an impact player. He was absolutely a beast, and I think – you know, I think deserves some fringe heart trophy consideration because where would the Sabres be without that guy? Like, they might be scraping 31 in the league without Jack Eichel. It was similar to last year's argument about McDavid for the heart. Where would the Oilers be without McDavid despite not even coming close to the playoffs last year? Uh, where would they be without McDavid? So it's, it's kind of similar to, to Jack Eichel. I don't think he'll be a finalist for the heart trophy, and I don't think he should be, but I think he deserves at least some conversation on him. Here's a few of the texts, 960, 960. Somebody goes, thank goodness they didn't get Conroy. Uh, Conroy would be in a bad spot. He was uh, in the running. He was one of the finalists for the Sabres job when they hired Botterill. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how many people are going to have success in Buffalo. Um, what else we got here? Do you ever think that Calgary and Buffalo could get together to make a deal for Eichel? Price would be high, but watching McDavid and Eichel battle for the near future would be pretty amazing. I mean, I, I don't know what Eichel would take. I don't know exactly how that would work, but... If, if they could get together, that would be the number one center that Flames fans have been looking for for <laughs> you know the last two decades. Um, no knock on Sean Monaghan, who I think is a, is a great player, but Jack Eichel is a bona fide, no questions asked, number one center in this league. Yeah, if the Flames were able to get him, I think that most would endorse it. I don't know how many Flames fans would be like, yeah, no, don't go get Eichel. That's too, uh, that's too high a price to pay for that elite center. I'll say this much to your yeah. point, Klein. There would be 30 teams interested in him. And maybe you can take the, the, the Pittsburghs and the Edmontons and uh, a few of the other teams who have their superstar centers already. You might take them out of the conversation, but there'd probably be like 25, 26 teams legitimately knocking on Buffalo's door with legitimate offers to bring that guy in. Because unless you draft a number one center and unless you get him and, and grow him um, in your organization... Guys like that do not come open on the open market very often. John Tavares, Joe Thornton, who else? Like, nobody else has come available as a number one center in the last 15 years. Are those the only two guys I can think of? And maybe I might be missing yeah. one or two. But the point is, they're an extremely rare commodity to actually be able to find outside of drafting them. And we know that drafting is not an exact science. So, uh, yeah, if, Calgary if, if Eichel was on the market and Calgary could get them, Get him? I'd say, yes, push all in and do everything you can to get Jack Eichel, much like I would say that would be the case for about 24 or 25 other NHL teams. Yeah, and, and honestly, even Pittsburgh and Edmonton, they'd at least call, well, hey, 
What's it gonna take? Just, just let's just let's just kick the tires on old Kev Adams here. Let's just let's see what he wants in this, especially Jim Rutherford, who's the most active GM in the last twenty years. Uh, what else we got here? Um, Buffalo trying to out Oiler the Oilers. Not really Botterill's <laughs> fault that Jeff Skinner forgot how to score goals. Um, this reads: I, I don't know if this would get it done. Eichel and Ristolainen for Monaghan, Giordano, Pelche, and a first. I think you might have to add a little bit more, Oof. like Giordano, who will be 37 next year, Monaghan for Eichel, Pelche. Like, Pelche, a first, a first, a second, and Monaghan might be just in the conversation to get Eichel. Like, to, to move a guy of that caliber, if, if the Sabres ever went down that road with some cost certainty, and let's be honest, at $10 million, he's looking more and more like a bargain based on NHL salaries today, which he's a part yeah. of escalating, but that's a different story. Um, you're probably going to have to break the bank and then some to bring that guy in, like multiple firsts and a prospect and an impact player on your team. It would, you know, just to make things work, yeah, you'd probably be talking about Monaghan, a couple of firsts and... Yeah, that's, that's what it would take to get Eichel if that would even get it done. And there would be a ton of competitive offers to get that bad boy done. Yeah, I, I think Monaghan, Gio, Pelche, and a first. You're sniffing around maybe Eichel. I, I don't know if Eichel and the 25-year-old top four defenseman would really work in that. No, nah, I mean, I'm not a big Ristolainen guy. I think that uh, I think Ristolainen is a bit of a bust. Uh, he's a full-time NHLer. Is he a good defenseman? Is he a guy that you'd build around? Probably not, but... Um, I still think that that's not going to get it done. As a Sabres fan, that isn't close. Try Monaghan, Valimaki, and multiple firsts as a starting point. See, like we're, I, I feel like that's yeah. a little bit more in the neighborhood. Um, or this one is Wedley writes in Jankowski in a third. I mean, it gets to the center Oof. and a pick. Yeah, well, maybe we should give former a first round pick. That. Yeah, exactly. They're both former first rounders. <laughs> both former top twenty waters. I mean. I yeah, go wrong with that. throw in the com compensation pick if they get one from the Oilers too. Just you know, a little cherry on top. We uh, welcome you to the program. I have no idea what the Buffalo Sabers are doing. We'll get more on that in just a few minutes with our NHL insider Chris Johnston. No, they don't. I don't think they know what they're doing either. Uh, it's Pat Steinberg, Peter Klein, Logan Gordon, along with you. Logo and I here at our Sportsnet 960 downtown studios. Kleiner at Shake Klein. Uh, we've actually seen a solid amount of NHL news the last couple of days. I mean, this one is the blockbuster, the Botterill news. But, you know, Flames made a, a minor signing yesterday, getting Archim Zagadulin locked up for another year. I do, and I, we don't have a ton of time, and I'll ask Chris Johnston about this in a few minutes, but I, I wanted to get your thought on this. Ryan Reeves very quietly re-ups in Vegas yesterday, pending unrestricted free agent signs for two more years for the Golden Knights, $1.75 million per. I wonder how many more pending UFAs we see sign between now and and whenever the NHL restarts, or between now and July 10th, or even between now and July 1st, when contracts are officially set to expire, which is still something the NHL needs to figure out. But I wonder how many guys sign for the next year or two just so they can give themselves a little peace of mind. Because if you are a pending unrestricted free agent going into an unprecedented NHL restart after almost five months not playing, uh, I wonder about the injury risk, and if you're a pending UFA, the injury risk going into a year where you don't have a contract, that's a, that's a scary situation. So I even apply it to here in Calgary with Hamannick or Brody or Gustafson or Forbord or some of the other UFAs this team has, even Cam Talbot. Like, if you're one of those guys and you're a little leery about 
potentially getting injured and then not getting a lot of bites when whenever this year's free agency period opens. Do you sign for a year? Do you sign for a couple of years just to give yourself that peace of mind and to know that you're covered for next year and then you can go into free agency under more normal circumstances? I wonder how many UFAs start to think about doing that here in the next number of weeks. Yeah, for, for Reeves, it was a little easier because I don't think he was expecting a raise on 2.75 if the situation were normal. So I think it's a bit of an easier one. But guys in that tier, for sure, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. Get locked in. And for teams, get get your bottom six or bottom pair defensemen. Get that kind of locked down and get that cost at least certain so that you know how many chips you have to play with once we figure out how low the salary cap can go. So no, I, I think I think you're right. I think we're going to see quite a few of these. I don't know if it's going to be in the Brody Hamannick tier, but definitely. Where, what tier uh, do you put uh, them in? Kind of the second tier of free agents? Uh, yeah, yeah, second. Um, certainly at least a tier or two above Ryan Reeves, uh, but, but definitely not in the upper echelon. But I, I think guys in the Ryan Reeves area and probably a tier up, um, it, it makes a ton of sense for them right now to, to just get that locked in. And even from a, a Hamannick Brody perspective, uh, a one-year contract just to see the lay of the land, I don't think it's a bad idea for them. Well, and, and like, look, uh, Travis Hamannick has never played more than 74 games in an NHL season. The guy plays a brand of hockey that gets him hurt. And mm-hmm. he was just he was just coming like he's already missed 20 games this year. He was just coming off an injury. He was maybe able to return against his former team in the game. The first game that got canceled, we were expecting Hamannick to be back against the New York Islanders on the Thursday. The NHL p- season got put on pause, but he's already missed 20 games this year. And and for Hamannick to at some the, especially in in you know all out everything on the line, best of five play-in and playoff rounds, for him to get hurt in, in the postseason or, or in this play-in round against the Jets, is that going to stun anybody? Just the way he plays, it wouldn't shock me. So if you're yeah. Hamannick, do you want to risk that without having uh, a contract for next year? I mean, yes, it's the difference between entering free agency at 29 as opposed to 30, and, and that's not insignificant, but what's more important? entering the free agent uh, free agency period and, and maybe getting a big deal at a certain age or having some certainty for next year and knowing that you're under contract. If you could sign at one times four, if you're Hamannick for next year, just to know that you've got another year under your belt for sure, and then you can enter a more normal free agency period next summer, might make a lot of sense for guys like him and in similar situations. Not quite the Taylor Halls, or the Alex no. Petrangelos, like not in those guys are not in this conversation, I don't think. But even if you jump into that second tier, I think that you might see a lot of that just because of the bizarre uncharted waters that we're in right now. Yeah, and just I know we got to go, but from a Flames perspective, would you do one at four for Hamannick? I do one at four for Hamannick. I do. I yeah, do, I think so too. I, I, and I do one at four times five or whatever for Brody. I'd, I'd bring them both back for another year. I, I don't know if I'm ready to commit long-term to either, but just knowing how bizarre this year is going to be, I'd bring him back both for another year if they were up for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I completely agree.
Interesting conversation. Uh, we'll touch on that and a whole lot more in just a couple of seconds with Chris Johnston. Don't forget, uh, coming up on Friday, it is our Father's Day push. Father's Day is on Sunday, and we're teaming up with our friends at Wild Rose Brewery. Once an hour on Friday, we are going to be giving away an awesome prize from Wild Rose. Once an hour between 6 and 10 with Pinder and Nalt, and then again with Logo and Ucline between 2 and 6. We're going to be giving away every hour a 12-pack of Wild Rose and a $50 gift card to the tap room. And all you got to do on friday is when the guys give you a cue to text you text in it's as easy as that you could be winning that prize happy father's day from wild rose brewery wishing you and yours health and safety during these challenging times we support you the hard-working characters of calgary and the rest of alberta of alberta rather not alberta uh we've got more on buffalo's decision al borland al borland the worst (laughs) character on an overrated show whoa Hot take, baby. We've got more on Buffalo's decision to fire Jason Botterill coming up next. How did this all come to be? NHL insider Chris Johnston in two minutes' time. Pinder and Steinberg, Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Calgary guys talking Calgary sports. Pinder and Steinberg are only on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Let's say hello to our NHL insider, Chris Johnston, who joins us every Tuesday on the program. Uh, CJ, let's... uh, Let's start with the news of the day. Jason Botterill fired by the Buffalo Sabres. I don't know how many people were expecting to wake up to that news. How'd this all come about? Well, I don't think too many should have been expecting it, if only because he got the dreaded uh, vote of confidence, what, a week or 10 days ago from yeah. Kim Bagula, one of the Sabres owners. And so, you know, I think that it was something that was in the air as a possibility, given it was another wayward season in Buffalo. But, you know, ownership had seemingly removed that possibility not so long ago. And so... You know, this uh, this did come as a, a bit of a surprise. I think it's a lesson that, um, you know, when you're a general manager, sometimes who you work for and how you manage that relationship is as important as uh, building a, a winning hockey team and, and roster. And, and, you know, ultimately, the Pagoulas have not proven to be successful owners since uh, taking over the Sabres. And I think the proof is in the number of general managers and head coaches uh, that have been under their employ. They're actually technically paying three general managers right now with uh, Tim Murray's contract, yeah. not up till the end of the month, two more years still on Jason Botterill's deal. And now the new contract they've given Kevin Adams to take over. And so, you know, that, that's, that's an indictment of some of those individuals to a degree, but I think far more, you know, what we're learning about the Sabres here is they've not built a good culture inside that organization. I think that that's been part of the downfall, uh, you know, since the Pagoulas bought that team seven or eight years ago. So, from who you've spoken to and the digging you've done, like what happened in the two weeks from them saying Botterill's coming back as GM to the news this morning? Well, I think it's as simple as not sharing a, a vision for for how to go forward. You know, I think the, the Pagulas, just to some degree, understandably, are, are growing impatient with uh, the, the lack of, of progress in terms of points in the standings and, and especially getting into the playoffs uh, for the team. And, and, you know, my sense is that, that Jason Bottle was only willing to do certain things. I mean, he had a, a vision in mind for for how he wanted to build a team. Let's remember, he only had three years on that job. You know, he was also someone at the time he was hired by Buffalo. I mean, he would have been at the top of or very near the top of a short list for any team that had an opening at that point in time. You know, he spent three years as assistant GM. Sorry, he, he won three Stanley Cups for others as assistant GM with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, you know, received a lot of uh, positive accolades for the way he helped them manage a tight salary cap situation for throughout those years and still build a team around the, the star players they have enough to, to win those championships. And so, 
you know, he didn't really get a long run here. And I think that, that he had one way of wanting to, to, to build this team and to continue going forward. And I think there's some impatience at the ownership level and ultimately they're going with their own guy. I mean, there was not even a, a search quote unquote to replace him. Kevin Adams has worked for the organization uh, for a number of years. He was in coaching. He's most, most recently been on the business side of the operation and has ownerships here. And I think he's a little bit more closely aligned with, with what the, the owners want in this case. Tell us a little bit more about Kevin Adams. He's been, he's got a couple of years as an assistant coach. He was doing business operation stuff in Buffalo. Like what are we talking about in terms of management experience? What are we talking about in terms of how he is looked at in the, the hockey personnel community? What can we, uh, what can you tell us about Kevin Adams? Well, I would say that there's probably only one place I would have given him this kind of opportunity now. And that's Buffalo where, you know, he does have deep roots and, and, you know, all the way back to his playing days. But, um, you know, more recently, as you say, working for this ownership group and, and seeing the, 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 the operation inside and out, uh, you know, he did have a period too working as a player agent a little bit after his own playing career ended a number of years ago. But, you know, he's, he's a little bit green in terms of, you know, hands-on front office experience. Uh, you know, that that may or may not prove to be, a problem depending on what goes on around him here because, you know, the Sabres are, I believe as we're talking right now, firing some of their scouts, you know, they, they let both of their assistant general managers go yeah. in addition to Jason Botterill, the general manager today. And so there's still, uh, you know, still a bit of an incomplete picture as to what Kevin Adams is stepping into and who will be surrounded with uh, for some of that experience. But I think the thing that, that jumps out initially when you, you hear this is just, you know, this isn't someone who, you know, it's not like Steve Eisenman who, you know, had a, a run in Detroit's front office before going on to be the GM in Tampa and then ultimately end up back where he is now, or even Joe Sackick. I mean, a lot of former players kind of tutor, in, in a sense, directly in the front office. I, I don't think that, that Kevin Adams has had that same experience. I mean, granted, he, he has worked on the business side, so he's got, a, he's got a feeling for how the organization runs that he wouldn't if he didn't uh, have that time there. But, um, you know, this is a bit of a, a big step for someone with, with that experience on paper. And, as I say, I think, you know, depending on how that whole department looks, which we don't yet know, you know, we'll, we'll probably go a long way to understanding here how they've got to this point. I mean, for example, if they hire a more experienced president at some point or someone to, to work with them, you know, I think that, that that would probably make some sense. But, you know, I don't know what uh, what direction everything's going at this point because it's still a fluid situation. Um, there's been, since this news was announced, there's been some talk that, you know, this is this is an ownership group that, wants to be very involved in the hockey operations and and the day-to-day in terms of what's happening on the ice. What do you understand there in terms of how involved the Pegulas are, A, and B, want to be in terms of the actual hockey personnel and, and hockey operations side of things? Well, they are highly involved. You know, Kim Pegula is the, the president of the team. And so, you know, there's there's a direct link between the general manager and the ownership group. You know, that's not completely unprecedented around the league. You know, Jeff Molson in Montreal, for example, uh, serves as, as the, the lead owner of the conglomerate that runs the Canadians. And he's also the team president. And, you know, obviously has a lot of interactions with Mark Bergevin. You know, there, there's sort of different setups in different places around the league, but I, I would say they're, they're definitely among the more, if not most involved owners. You know, I think that they, they have that right to a degree with the investment they've made in the team and, and, and all those types of things. But, you know, so far, the proof is, is in the results that, that it hasn't worked. And I think that, you know, they have to take some ownership of that in addition to the, the people that they've employed. And so, 
Um, you know, maybe this will be a little bit more harmonious, you know, with Kevin Adams being someone they, they know very well. They, mm-hmm. you know, they've had some time to work with in, in other roles and, and there might be some more comfort with that setup. You know, I, I don't know for a fact, but, you know, Jason Botterill is someone that they brought in because of his experience elsewhere, but they had to start essentially building the relationship from that point on from hiring him. If you recall, he was hired, I believe, during the Stanley Cup final when Pittsburgh won the, the most recent of its cups, uh, you know, against the Nashville Predators. And so, you know, that was a bit of a, a hurried situation in the sense that he was, you know, getting hired and the, the draft was a week or two later and free agency and all those types of things. And and so, you know, this, this at least sets up um, as being a bit more of a comfortable situation. But, you know, the one thing that isn't comfortable there is the fans are – are mighty restless. You know, they've had trouble selling tickets in recent years. Um, you know, I think that the, the amount of losing that organization's done, you know, much like what we saw in Edmonton before the Oilers have had a bit of an uptick here has really taken a toll in the community. And so, you know, I think that the, one of the tough parts for Kevin Adams is he's a rookie GM and we can only really judge him on his own decisions starting today with that organization, but he's going to be saddled with some of the recent failure in terms of the pressure in the market and the expectations from the fan base because, you know, they've, they've had to, they've had to watch a lot of bad hockey in, in the last five or six years in particular. And, and so, you know, it's, it's going to be a high pressure job to step into. And that's why, as I say, I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see yeah. how they build out the front office around them, because I think that that help is, is needed for anyone, but especially someone in this particular type of situation. Chat with Chris Johnston, our NHL insider. He joins us Tuesdays and Thursdays here on Pinder and Steinberg. Pivoting from that, where are we today, June 16th? What's happening? What are you hearing? What's important when it comes to the NHL's push to restart the season? It's funny. It's been been a little bit quiet the last few days. I mean, there was a, a board of governors call yes, last night, yesterday afternoon, uh, with the league, and it didn't sound like a whole lot came out of that. I, I believe the players uh, had their own call at the NHL Players Association today. Um, you know, and... and Beyond that, I think you know what's what's most pressing is finalizing this this agreement now that you know ultimately the players and the owners will have to vote on in terms of the return to play. And so, you know, they're they're still working through the some of the the, the the hub city stuff, not not just what cities those will be, you know, which we've we've been discussing a fair bit, but you know how it's all going to work and what the bubble is going to look like. And you know, I don't know how much you've been following what's going on in the NBA, but that's, that's proven to be a bit of an issue uh, over on the basketball side of things with Kyrie Irving and uh, leading a group of players that are opposed to some of the things that, that are going to be demanded of them as part of the, the, the bubble environment that they are, are facing at Disney world in Orlando. You know, I, I don't think the NHL has got quite as far as the NBA in terms of spelling out what those might be. I also don't sense, I should note that, that there's as much opposition to that. I think, you know, hockey players, by and large are, are going to, you know, live with what, what the union decides is best for them. Obviously that there's some concerns and, and family time and, and things of, of that nature. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't anticipate it maybe being as, as rocky as, as what we've seen over the weekend with the NBA, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, it seems as though there, there's still at this point, a lot of work being done into kind of crafting that final package of what, what the exact protocols are going to be, what life's going to look like in the bubbles you know, making a final decision once and for all on those hub cities and giving, uh, you know, both sides something to to vote on because, you know, obviously players are now preparing as though that July 10th camp date is locked in stone, but, you know, there still has to be a vote before that's actually the case. 
Um, you, uh, you tweeted about this earlier today. The Canadian government and the uh, United States government have agreed to keep the border closed for non-essential travel until at least July 21st. But that, that's not really the announcement that impacts the NHL at all, is it? There's, there's another announcement or another lifting of restrictions that they're really waiting for at this point. There is. And I think people get hung up on the non-essential travel part of it because, I think people want to argue, well, you know, hockey players crossing the border, how is that essential? Well, I think I'm pretty sure that, that any worker at this point, if you can prove you have a valid reason to go from one country to the yeah, other. You, like you could go, if you, if you needed to go cover something in Buffalo or in, in, you could go, you could cross the border as I understand it, right? Yes, I, I think you might have to produce some documentation or proof of that. You know, it's not just uh, I show up at the border and say, oh yeah, my company sent me over here, but you know, the, the point of the matter is, is, is any NHL player uh, that, that works in a country other than the one that, that is his home, you know, would have a work visa as part of that. And so any Canadians or Swedes that are playing for U.S.-based teams or U.S. or Swedes playing for Canadian-based teams, you know, have the, the relevant work papers to prove that they have a reason to be in that country. And, and so, you know, guys have already been, been crossing the border uh, at this point in time, some of them to come back to their cities to, to participate in phase two, others just as, you know, the, their, their travel. And so that July 21st deadline doesn't impact the, the players directly. You know, what we're still waiting to, to find out, and I know we've talked about a lot, is, is what happens with this quarantine. But I think it's, there was a notable development today with, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, you know, saying that, that the federal government is open to the idea of, of uh, Canadian cities serving as one of the hub cities, if only because... I know there's been a, a tremendous amount of dialogue between the NHL and the federal government on the quarantine issue. Uh, there'd be no mystery at the top levels of the government as to you know what would hold up a Canadian city being a hub city, and that is uh, that quarantine. And so I you know I think the fact the prime minister has said that that they're open to having a hub city to me that signals okay he hasn't spelled out exactly you know how they're going to work with the league on the quarantine issue, but but that's a sign to me that mm-hmm. that they are willing to do that and. You know, I would think that that now paves the way, quite honestly, for for one of these two ups to be based in Canada, because I think that it's it's been the NHL's preference all along to include a Canadian city for a whole host of reasons. And you know, if the government now is publicly in favor of it, um, you know, I think that we're probably looking at Toronto and Vegas, quite honestly. It's not locked in stone, 100% signed, sealed, and certified, but you know, that that seems to be where the wind is blowing at this point in time. Uh- We've talked a lot about what goes into selecting these two cities and like why they would want Vegas or Toronto or any of the other cities that have been talked about as potential hubs. But in terms of finalizing things, what are the steps that need to be taken uh, in terms of engaging players and, and owners and all this type of stuff? Like what, what now goes into finalizing and officially announcing those two hub cities? Well, I think the first thing to note is that the players through the, the NHL Players Association have a say in this. You know, it's not a, a unilateral decision from, from Gary Bettman and Bill Daly saying, okay, you guys are going to be here and you guys are going to be there. I mean, the, the sort of the return to play committee that, that was helping work on playoff format, I think, has, has been quite involved in the, some of the pros and cons discussions with the cities. And, you know, ultimately when it gets to a point where the league and players are comfortable that those are the two cities, or if, if it's another one, but once they're comfortable with those cities, you know, I think then the league has to enter into some agreements with, with hotels in terms of putting down deposits and, and you know, really taking final steps that way. And I think that that's something that, that, that hasn't happened just quite yet. I mean, I think the league wants to be sure and, and 
you know, we know that they've sort of said all along here that, that there was no reason to rush into this decision that mm-hmm. they want to, to kind of leave as, as enough time to, to do everything they need to do, but also give themselves a full window of, of what they're agreeing to before they do so. And, and I, you know, it sounds as though we're, we're probably within a week of, of that decision needing to be finalized. And so, you know, at that point, the league would, uh, you know, finalize the hotels and, I think that's where you can really start being specific with the players association about you know, what the bubble looks like, because you're, you're not dealing with hypotheticals then, you, you know, you, you know, it's, it's city A and city B and you're staying in this hotel and you have to go to this arena. And, and I think you can really sort of start crafting specifically, you know, what is and isn't allowed, um, you know, for the players during that time, because that, that's a huge, huge part of this. I mean, uh, I know we all take for granted and, you know, that, that, yeah, they have to get back. They want to play for the Stanley cup, this and that, but you know, the, the teams that ultimately play for the Stanley cup, um, you know, if this tournament goes ahead, you know, could be in one city for, you know, 68, 70 days. Um, and perhaps even longer, depending on when they travel there for the exhibition games. I mean, we're looking at maybe 11 or 12 weeks. If you happen to land in the city where all four rounds plus the play in round are going to be played. And so, you know, I think what life looks like for the players there is, 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 really important to define and again things like the family if, if they'll be able to visit at some point and, and all those sort of concerns how the health and safety is going to work and so you know i think that that's that's kind of where we're at this week is, is finalizing those hub cities and then you know building out uh, you know some of the specific protocol around um you know how that will look and how that will work and then ultimately getting to a point where the players can review the whole package and the owners can do the same and and cast a vote about whether they're going to go forward with this plan one more on this topic. Did you uh, happen to, I know you were on 650 yesterday, but did you happen to hear Kevin Bieksa's comments? And if so, uh, any reaction to that? Is He was pretty, I don't want to say skeptical, but he wasn't quite as ready to say that this is happening and, and I can't wait for it to happen. Did you happen to hear those? I did hear them. And, you know, I, he, he's totally right. I mean, look, he, he was pretty forthright, at least the, the part that I only heard the clip. I didn't hear the whole interview, but... You know, he's saying based on, you know, the players he spoke with that there's some trepidation there. And, I, you know, I think that, that that's the case. You know, I, I still don't get the feeling, though, that we're going to have a groundswell of, of opposition. And, you know, I'll eat my words if I'm wrong on this one because, you know, I guess the, the other way to, to put it is it's maybe until the players see exactly what everything is spelled out. I mean, there, there's nothing to oppose at this point in time other than mm-hmm. to be a little bit skeptical. Um, but, you know, there, there's, look, there, there's not that much of a window here to work with, I would say, to, to address concerns that might come up. And so, you know, I'm sure until this thing is officially done, done, you know, none of us should get too far ahead of ourselves uh, because, you know, it it is possible something crops up that that is an issue that that can't be solved. You know, I don't see it getting to that point because, you know, reading kind of the tea leaves here, I just see the NHL and NHLPA working so closely together, not, not having a lot of, um, animosity in, in these talks, certainly no evidence of either side sort of baiting each other on. You know, I think that everyone's focused on a, a common goal. And, and when the attitude is, is that way, you know, it's less likely that things are going to go sideways and, and go right off the rails. But, you know, I, I shouldn't, we shouldn't undermine either that, you know, an agreement has to be reached and, and they're not there yet. And that if on, say, June 22nd or June 23rd, something goes wrong, there isn't a lot of time to salvage that and, and get everything in order and, and get everyone back and, and, you know, proceed to the tournament. I mean, there's, there's kind of a, a, a 
window here that the, the league's trying to to bring everything together and and you know get the the, the game back and, and award a Stanley Cup. Hopefully before the possibility of a second wave also arriving over North America, and so you know, there's there's still a lot of variables at play. And I think you know what Kevin is representing there is that you know some players that that, that he's got relationships with or that he's been talking to are, I guess, have to have their own doubts that everything will be able to be pulled off. You know, I'll say just personally, I'm I'm still rather optimistic um, that this is going to happen. Uh, just even the number of players now participating in phase two. And, and, you know, obviously they're just preparing themselves just in case, but I, I just sense a buy-in um, from, from both sides that, that that they're focused on finding solutions and, and not creating their problems. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's such a different atmosphere than certainly we see in baseball, but even some of what's happened in the NBA, it's not been as easy of a road to uh, navigate for those two sports as I think what we've seen so far in the NHL. Just a few more with Chris Johnston, our NHL insider. I wanted to ask you this. We saw Ryan Reeves sign yesterday. He's a pending unrestricted free agent, and he signs with Vegas for two more years. Knowing that we're, we're kind of entering this completely uncharted situation with a restart of a season when we actually start to drop the puck on important games almost five months from when the last time there was an NHL game. You think we start to see more pending UFAs re-up on short-term deals? Is that something just for peace of mind for some of these guys that we might see here a little more in the next few weeks? Well, it makes a lot of sense, you know, and, and it, it's peace of mind. It's it's some financial security at an uncertain time. And, you know, I think it, it can be it can be good for the, the team to, to make that I guess their commitment to the player known in that way. And so, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't heard of any other deals that are imminent, but I, I think it does make sense. You know, maybe even with the big fish. I mean, I think the St. Louis blues intend to try to, you know, keep their captain, Alex Petrangelo, you know, he's got a tough decision to make in a sense, because, you know, this does stand as the year where I think he would be labeled the number one unrestricted free agent. Uh, if you did, uh, if you did reach that far, I guess him or Taylor Hall, depending on how you view things. And so, you know, I wonder if the Blues re-engage with him and see if there's some way to get that done because, you know, the the, the world has changed a lot since uh, even the trade deadline when the last sort of significant hockey decisions have been made around the league. And so I think it, it does make sense um, for guys to at least consider this. And, you know, one, one part of Reeves' deal, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it was pretty heavily backloaded in this case, which I think is a sign of something you'll see players do that sign multi-year deals just because, uh, we don't yet know what the escrow situation is going to be, but I think it's fair to say players are going to pay, have to give up a lot more of their checks next season than, than even the years that come beyond it, uh, most likely uh, because of the damage that's being done to the industry financially. And so, you know, for, for guys to, to get say, a two-year extension like Reeves got, not only does he get that, but he gets an opportunity then to, to delay some of the pavement to a point where you know, I think that there's some hope that the NHL will be back closer to, to what it was before all this arrived and, and he'll be, be seeing even more of that money than he might have. And finally, I, I want to get to your NHL awards picks. We'll do that on Thursday. There was just a ton of news today. So we, we got plenty of time to get into which way you're leaning on NHL awards, which your ballots are now in. But I wanted to make sure before we said goodbye, uh, tell us what you did yesterday. You were uh, among a number of people uh, in the company in Toronto, helping out with the uh, Toronto food bank. Uh, tell us about yesterday a little bit. And I think just as we were getting now, and I really did want CJ to 
Yeah, we lost him right. He was about. I, I heard something going on with the phone. He's calling back right now. I want to make sure that we get that answer from him because uh, it's pretty important. So uh, we'll do that as we continue along. Chris Johnston's with us, our NHL insider. Uh, just perfect timing, CJ. You dropped right as I was asking you about the, the feel-good story yesterday. Um, tell us what you did yesterday in Toronto with the food bank. Yeah, it was uh, pretty cool. We were all in the in the Rogers Center. I was there with the... A group of our Sportsnet teammates, David Amber, Chris Simpson, Elliot Friedman, uh, Kathy Broderick, Deb Bourbon, you know, a whole bunch of our staff uh, were there essentially, uh, you know, to kick off what I think will be a two-month food drive uh, that they're, they're doing. They're using the space that they have uh, with the Blue Jays uh, not needing the, the Rogers Centre these days to, to box 8 million uh, basically meals for, for to donate to the food bank. And so... Uh, we, we spent about four hours there this afternoon or yesterday afternoon uh, helping with that. And, and, you know, it's a pretty big uh, undertaking that J- the Jays Care Foundation and Rogers have taken on. And so uh, it was it was fun to, to see some some colleagues again, because quite honestly, we haven't been around each other in person since March. We've been on a few Zoom calls with the, the bearded Elliot Friedman, but hadn't seen him face to face in quite some time. And uh, was the beard even more to- glorious in person? Yeah, well, it's sprouting out around his mask, so it was uh, it, it was it was quite quite something to see, and and uh, you know, good to help out with with the cause that the company's undertaking, and it was it was pretty fun actually. It was uh, kind of wish I was there, uh, you know, on a June afternoon for a ball game, but uh, that uh, that was the second best thing that was possible, and um, and we had a good day. Good stuff, and that was uh, really cool to see how many people in the company helped out with that. That uh, that was really neat. Thank you, CJ. We will talk on Thursday. Good stuff, as always, my friend. All right. Look forward to it, Pat. Be well. You as well. Chris Johnston, our NHL insider, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. He joins us on the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline, now open for limited dine-in service with all safety precautions in place. Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar, the best pizza, pasta, steaks, and ribs since 1975 at 6060 Memorial Drive Northeast. Well, with the regular season officially in the books, get your thinking caps on right now for the next segment. Who is the biggest Pleasant surprise for the Calgary Flames this season. We'll get Kleiner's thoughts. We'll get Logo's thoughts. My answer might surprise you a little bit. We'll do that when we come back. Pinder and Steinberg rolling into hour number two next on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Who was the biggest surprise this year for the Calgary Flames? That's how we're kicking off this hour. We're doing year-end stuff now that the NHL regular season is officially complete and we start looking towards kind of a well, it's a brand new mini season. We're talking about a best of five playing round and a round robin and then the traditional playoffs. It's going to be as different as we've ever seen. So they have officially deemed the NHL regular season complete. Some teams got 70, some teams got 72, some teams got 68. All depends on when the season start, stop for each team involved why they've ranked everybody on points percentage. So we've got the opportunity now. We did yesterday by looking back and making our picks for Hart Trophy. We had two first-place votes for Nathan McKinnon and one first-place vote for Artemi Panarin. Today, a positive one when it comes to the Calgary Flames. Who is the biggest positive surprise? It's Pat Steinberg, Peter Klein, and Logan Gordon along with you on Pinder and Steinberg this afternoon. Logo and I live from our Sportsnet 960 downtown studios. Kleiner remains at Shea Klein. 
the beautiful palatial estate with his wife. Um, there's a number of candidates. I'm very, I'm very curious to see where uh, you're going, where our text line would go with this. I, I'm mine. I think would surprise some people. Um, I'll do mine last, but I think that my surprise player might be. Yeah, I don't know if you necessarily would see it coming. Maybe you would. Maybe you wouldn't. Might but which be very way, surprising. Could be very well surprising. Which way are you going, Mr. Klein? Uh, for for me, like you said, there are a few candidates. I, I'm going with Andrew Manjapani. Um, I, I think doubling his goal total this year, a lock in a top top six role for this team for most of the season. Um, I, I knew that the, the Flames had something with him. I, I didn't expect a guy who, if, if the season would have been completed, probably gets to the 20 goal mark. I, I I did I did not see that for Andrew Manjapani. I thought productive bottom six guy who will have the, the skills and abilities to, to put up some decent numbers for a bottom six guy. Um, I, I did not see, oh yeah, no, he's just a lock on one of our most important lines now. So I'm, I, I went with Manjapani. It's a good choice. And he's definitely, he's, he's, he's the obvious one. So is it that good a choice? Maybe um, stop patting well, I don't know. You just said it was a good choice. And, I was just trying to I mean, be nice to you. Come on. Sometimes the man. obvious choice is the right one. Son, son, <laughs> I will spank you, son. Um, I believe that we're like five years point. apart. Sorry, are the mics on? Are we? Yeah, is... <laughs> we're not on the air yet, are we? This is just we're, yeah. just, we're just practicing for the next segment. Right. Logo, which way would you go? Are you are you leaning Majapani too? I'm not. Uh, I, when we posed the question, I took it uh, to the literal sense of who was actually the biggest surprise. And while I was very happy with the year that Andrew Majapani had, and that most people I think would be. Uh, the biggest surprise for me was Milan Lucic. Um, not, uh, I really had very low expectations for number 17 coming into the season. And I would say that in 68 games, 20 points, you know, he was never going to run away with, you know, the scoring title here or anything like that. But I think he, from a game to game basis, found a way to have an impact and was, to be honest, much more effective than I thought he was going to be. So I took the question very literally because I didn't expect much from him and he exceeded my expectations. Is it worth the contract that he was? And you can go back to the trade, uh, being, you know, even maybe not, but uh, he was a pleasant surprise for me this season. You know, he was one of the guys that I had in my, um, on my honorable mention list. I had Milan Lucic. I had Andrew Mangiapane. Uh, a few of these guys, like, cause I think that here, here would be some, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back at all, but why guys like Cam Talbot, Andrew Mangiapane, and Rasmus Anderson don't do it for me is because I'm I'm honestly not surprised at and at any of the success any of the three had. I mean I've been I've been a pretty huge Mangiapane fan for a while and and I really felt like Cam Talbot had a a really good chance of bouncing back after a rough year last year and Rasmus Anderson has been trending towards being a, a top pairing if not a bona fide top four defenseman for a little while now so all those guys to me are kind of exactly where I thought they were going to be and again that's not patting myself on the back because I get plenty uh, I get plenty more wrong than than I get right but none of those guys for me were overly surprising the guy for me that is the most surprising is TJ Brody and I, I I'm gonna give TJ Brody the nod here because TJ Brody has gotten a lot of flack and a lot of criticism and and most of it valid over the last two or three seasons. I mean, he here's a guy that for a little while was a bona fide, no questions asked, top pairing defenseman on this team and in the league. He was in conversations for being on World Cup teams and, and representing Team Canada. And 
really had a, a significant drop-off and, and for about three straight seasons was well below the T.J. Brody that we were talking about when he was in those same discussions. This year, for me, like T.J. Brody was one of their two best defensemen, and, and he, ha- he has had a significant bounce-back season. You can tell me all you want it's in a contract year, or you can tell me all you want that he shouldn't be back next year. Those are different conversations. But for me... I was not expecting Brody to have the bounce back that he had. And I I feel like personally, I feel that some of the flack that he's taken over the last few years maybe has been a little over the top. Like at no point has Brody not been a top four defenseman in this league. You base it on metrics. You base it on minutes played. Yeah. Is he prone to some mistakes? Of course he is. And especially over the last three seasons before this one, there were some pretty egregious mistakes in there and ones that he was not making before. This year, however... Like, Brody's been their second-best defenseman. Behind Mark Giordano, it has been TJ Brody. He has been solid. Those mistakes have been cut down. He's been a possession driver. I've I've really liked what I've seen from Brody this year. So I wasn't necessarily expecting that. So that's where I lean for biggest surprise because I, I really appreciate how Brody has played this year. I really appreciate how steady he's been this year, and that has not been the case anywhere near as much over the last number of years. Yeah, I, I didn't think I'd get to a point with Brody where I would be thinking, oh, yeah, definitely bring him back for the Flames next season. Uh, I, I I was kind of expecting going into this year being, okay, contract's up, he leaves, and everyone just kind of moves on with their, their lives. Because it just, it really didn't feel like he was going to get back to, like you said, Pat, that level where it was him and Gio who were being considered for all those international um, accolades, as you were saying. And it had really fallen off. I know that I was harder on him than you were. Um, or maybe not harder, just more down on him than you were. Um, it, it just felt like there were a couple game-changing uh, breakdowns a week with him. And those cleaned up. And I, I'm, I'm with you. I was very pleasantly surprised at the, the level that TJ Brody played at this year. So let's uh, let's get into some of these texts at 960-960. Um, couple from Anjapani. Um, this reads, Breadman is probably the best story for the Flames, but I think Talbot is the most surprising performer for the Flames this year. Where are we on Talbot's here? Like, I, I, I know that when, when they signed him, and, and Pinder and I got into some arguments about this during the offseason and no. early on in the year, I know. Um, but but Pinder was, <laughs> was more of the opinion that, no, no, what Talbot did last year was probably, you know, that's, that's the way he's trending. You know, I'm, I, he wasn't as confident in a bounce back, and that's fair. He had, like, valid reasons. I'm not trying to throw Pinder under the bus. It's just he had some valid reasons and valid backup to think that, you know, maybe the way that Talbot is trending is the way that he's going to continue to trend. On the other side, I was like, well, you know, for a guy who was a 915 save percentage goalie throughout his career prior to last year, one bad year, a guy who can put together five years of being pretty high end at 915 and have one bad year, the the results would show that most guys are going to bounce back. And that's not necessarily the way it's going to go. It's all projection and nobody knows so I wasn't as surprised with the year that Talbot had just because it, it, it seemed to suggest that this is a pretty good goalie who had his confidence shaken a little bit last year and had a really tough year with Philly and Edmonton. A new start, a fresh start, easing him back into things like they did in the early stages of the season. I, I'm not as surprised as some others are with Talbot. Where, where are we guys on, on Cam Talbot and how surprising his year has been? I wasn't uh, in the camp that I was surprised either with. I think the stats that you laid out, Pat, especially the the year by year would show probably last season was more of an aberration than anything. And I I even got to the point where 
you know, just before all of this shutdown came, we were having this discussion late in the season as to who, you know, would be starting the next game because there were a couple points in the season, I believe it was maybe after the Ducks shut out, um, that Talbot didn't get the next start and then he had the string of wins just before the shutdown uh, and then they went to uh, Riddick against the Golden Knights and he didn't have a, a great game there and I was I was really liking to see how the team played in front of him. I think they had really uh, committed to a good team game with him in the net and they had some confidence in him uh, going forward and I think you know for a guy that uh, you know only got into 26 games I think he was impactful. I mean look the commitment that he showed to the team and going out there and you know, not taking it against the Oilers in that game at the Saddle Dome. And, you know, everyone talks about the goalie fight and everything, but the significance of that, you know, that was his old team that he played for for a couple of years and being a leader in the team, I think, was a, a really good tandem partner for David Riddick. And I think if you can find a way to bring him back for another year, I think Flames fans would be really, really happy with that. I think he's been a great addition all season long. Yeah, my, my concern... Uh, with Talbot wasn't that his confidence was shot. I, I was more concerned that the Oilers had kind of ridden that horse into the ground. Right. And when he made that run into the playoffs, it was every, like it was Grant Fuhr level of just absolutely riding that guy. And so I, I was kind of concerned that it was, it was more damaged goods than it was damaged confidence. So um, in that sense, there was a bit of a surprise there, but I, I I thought that this was at least within the realm of possibilities for Cam Talbot. Like there was certainly a world where this could have happened. So I'm, I'm not all the way there on the, the surprise. I, I think it's what one of those texters said about Manjapani. Um, I, I think it, it's kind of flipped where I, I think Talbot is one of the better stories as he has certainly brought a lot of value back into his career but maybe not necessarily a surprise. The The underlying numbers on Manjapani have been trending in a really good direction going back to last year. Like You take a look at the second half of last season, and both Rasmus Anderson and Andrew Manjapani, who are, are so tied at the hip in so many ways, knowing the, the path they've taken, both playing in Barry, both playing in the American League together, and now both in, in the NHL together with the Flames. But both guys last year, uh, on en route to winning the Western Conference in the regular season, both guys in the second half of the season like, had some of the best underlying metrics on the team. And while Manjapani didn't see a lot of offense going his way in the second half of the season, he saw more than the first half. It just it seemed like if that was going to continue into this year, which it has, eventually the dam was going to break. And 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 it has burst. And and I like this guy to me seems like if you were to say going back to his draft year in fifteen, uh, yeah, he's the most surprising guy because a sixth round pick you're not expecting a guy to be a, a 20, 25 goal scorer in this league. I think 20, 25 goals is maybe the, the floor for what we might be talking about Manjapani. I think he's got that much ability, that much, um, like his, his goal scoring touch and, and his ability to produce offense at every level throughout his career. It wouldn't shock me at all if we're talking about a perennial 2025 or more guy. I that's that's what we're talking about with this young man. I he would honestly sure. I'd honestly say that his progression helped lead to Michael Froelich being expendable for this team. Yeah. Yeah. I think so cuz he can play yeah. in a, purely like that. He can play in a top 6 role and and he can do it in in a situation where he's going up against top players on a regular basis. And I'm sorry, doesn't he not feel like the perfect candidate for the next uh, Brad Treliving, you know, four or five year contract where a little bit more money up front and then the next path of the deal is going to look real good, you know, sort of like the Lindholm, Rasmus Anderson, Noah Hannafin type of deal. Could see it. I mean, yeah. 
have they done it? I, I know there was some, it wasn't just on the team. That was a very interesting contract negotiation this past summer. Have they done it last summer, though? Hindsight being 2020 and taking all the actual situation out of this chat. Have they done it last year? They could have got them for like five years at $3 million. That would have been an absolute bargain. They probably could have got it less than that. Um, it might be a little bit more now, but I, I'm with you, Logo. I think that this guy is is somebody that you probably do want to lock up long-term. They got Anderson done, and that looks like a really nice deal and I think is going to serve them very well in the coming years. Lindholm and, and Hannafin, I think, will continue to serve them well. And I think Manjupani needs to be that next guy who has that, that four, five, six-year term on it where in a few years we're talking about, oh, boy, the Flames are in really good shape because of this contract and that contract. No, I, I, I'm with you. And I, I think this is one, I remember talking about it, uh, th- this is one where Brad Trilliving is going to be okay uh, having to spend an extra couple million dollars to, to get this one to happen because uh, th- this was kind of a look. We can't do it now. Prove us wrong. And Mar- and to, to Manjapani's credit came out and not that the, the organization was down, but just like, okay, come out and, and be pissed off at us and, and do earn a bigger contract. And he has absolutely done that. And I think that the flames will gladly give him that raise because like you guys said, even if you do, there, there's a chance that there's a, a pretty big value to that at the end. My, I guess my surprise with it, and it's ties in with the, the fro leak situation. I didn't think that the opportunity was going to be there for him to, right. to really take that step forward. And he, not only did he make for leak expendable, but it's not like for leak was on that second line right up until he gets moved to Buffalo. Like they basically turned for leak into a fourth line slash scratch guy on a, a night in night out basis. And it's because Manjapani was just undeniable. And I just, I, I thought those skills were there. I didn't know if they would be there this year though. To your pick logo and, and Logan chose Milan Lucic as his most surprising player to your point. I, I, he has to be in the mix for me because the expectations for him coming in after the Neil trade were low. And I, I, I thought to myself, well, I, I know there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of narrative about how the flames needed more toughness and they coveted that. And that's why they got Lucic. Well, I mean, in reality, the reason that trade was made is because there were two bad contracts that weren't fitting in their city. Like it was, trying to rectify two bad situations and two bad contracts, and that's why the deal was made. However, when looking at what Lucic has done, especially in the last couple of months, I give him a lot of credit because, look, the contract's never going to be good, and and it's always going to be difficult to justify a $5.25 million cap hit for him. However, from what he was in his final year in Edmonton, from what he was in the first few months of the season in Calgary, to what he has become the last couple of months, He's been a really effective bottom six forward. Like he is, he has really grown into, I think, a leadership role. I think he's really grown into needing to be a, a tone setter physically. We're not going to be talking about Lucic scoring 20 and, and 20 goals and 50 points anymore. That's not what he is. And he still has limitations, but you can trust him defensively. You can trust him in a leadership role. You can trust him to be out there to kind of be that deterrent and to lean on guys physically you can play him 12 to 14 minutes a game and and he has in the first few months of the season logo he was I I feel he was hurting the team too much now I feel like in his role 
He has started to help the team far more often. And not only is he helping the team more than he's hurting them, he just hasn't hurt them anywhere near as much in the last couple of months. I I give a big tip of the hat to Milan Lucic because I didn't see it coming. And he's proven a lot of people wrong. I I give the guy a ton of credit. And I think a, a, a good chunk of that just has to do with feeling like he was accepted and had a role and had a purpose on this team. And, and he's really kind of dove into that. I, I, I'm really impressed with what we've seen from him considering the circumstances. Yeah, one of the problems that I think Flames fans have had and one that I've certainly had with the, the team over the last few years is uh, they've seemed to shoehorn guys into positions that just weren't working or... It just wasn't a fit there. I'll, I'll go to Troy Brower and and James Neal even as examples, and probably the most obvious ones, where it just it wasn't working. And whether or not it was an acceptance of the coaching staff or management or even the player themselves, because they have to take responsibility in this too, to to find a role and to find something that works for both sides. And it just seemed like we weren't at that position with with at least those two guys. And I think at the beginning of the year. They were a bit uh, guilty of doing the same thing with with Milan Lucic, and I think that they adjusted brilliantly as to what was an acceptable role for him, what kind of situations he would be best in, and he's really carved out a spot that I didn't think he had in him. Is it an effective one? Absolutely. Is it great for money for value? Probably not, but... You weren't getting great money for value for James Neal either. It was never good. That's and that's the that's awesome. Like it's not like James Neal's contract was. No, he wasn't scoring twenty here. The guy was disinterested. He didn't want. He wasn't buying in. He wasn't that guy. And clearly, if he was, you know, still a good fit in the locker room and stuff, they would have found a way to do it. But that wasn't the case. To to change it around and change the narrative around to a guy that's happy here and is actually pulling on the rope in the same direction as the other team. As the, excuse me, as the rest of the team, I think is is really good. And I mean, look, the expectations and the reason I picked Lucic in this conversation was because the expectations were really, really low. Right. And he's burst through a lot of those ceilings. Well, and, and Kleiner, like, it's it's never going to be, like, you're never going to be able to convince me or anybody else that $5.25 million on a bottom six forward is, is a... But that doesn't like that doesn't change the fact like the contract was already signed and the Neil contract was already signed just based on what the expectations were for Lucic and and based on how things started here uh, like the, the contract at some point you have to separate that like that is what it is Lucic is is always going to be overpaid on this deal that that's just the way I mean that was the case the day he signed it in Edmonton but. For the role that he's been asked to play and for how things went up north and for how things started this year, he has he's done the He's made the best of of the hand that he was dealt, and the Flames have made the best of it as as well. I I think that he he's an important player in his role on this team right now, and and that didn't it wasn't necessarily trending that way a few months ago. Yeah, I think the the most important thing when we look back on the the Milan Lucic era in Calgary, I think the most important thing is going to be his help with, with Dylan Dubé's development. And you see the bond that they have when uh, Lucic scored his first goal and Dubé's reaction. You can see there there's a bond there. And, and I think when you look at how just insane this entire season was for the the Calgary Flames with everything going on with Brody and Peters. And and there was nothing normal about this season for the Flames. Having someone like Milan Lucic, who hadn't necessarily gone through that, but had gone through a lot in this league and just have him 
being that rock in the locker room, I, I think was very important. And then you, you look at on ice and I mean, we've discussed he, he is not a player without flaw for sure. But with him, Ryan and Dubé, there were times where that was one of the more consistent lines on the team, in part because of the struggles of other players. But that was a line that you could at least count on um, for, for certain stretches of the night. So And that was never something I was expecting to say about Milan Lucic. Yeah. So he, he absolutely deserves so, some recognition in this spot. As I, was, I was pleasantly surprised with what I saw from Milan Lucic. Few texts before we wrap up the segment. Once again, three different votes for most surprising flame this year. Logo went with Milan Lucic. Kleiner went with Andrew Mangiapane. I went with TJ Brody. Uh, somebody said terrible choice, Pat. On the other hand, uh, somebody goes TJ Brody for me. He was trending downhill the last couple of seasons, and I thought he was going to be a train wreck this year. But I thought he held his own pretty nicely overall. Mike writes, "New TJ Brody is a different man and player. He took the piano off his back and is just playing with confidence again." I understand that Brody will forever not be able to win over certain members and that's that's fine like if yeah. your opinion is is as valid as mine is but in my opinion I think Looking objectively at it, Brody's had a pretty good year. Uh, somebody goes with a Derek Ryan vote. Derek Ryan, I liked him last year as a responsible bottom six guy, but he showed a little more this year than I thought he had in him. That's just some of the other uh, nominees for most surprising player on the Calgary Flames this year. We'll do more of that. Uh, that was a positive one. At some point, we'll do most disappointing. We'll do some other, uh, we'll do MVP, all that type of stuff as we continue along, plus the NHL year-end awards. We uh, started with that yesterday when taking a look at the heart trophy be tuned in friday on the morning show from six till ten and then be tuned in afternoons from two till six on friday as we're teaming up with our friends at wild rose brewery for a pretty awesome giveaway for Father's Day. Once an hour on the morning show, once an hour on afternoons, we're going to be giving away a 12-pack of Wild Rose beer and a $50 gift card to the Wild Rose Tap Room. All you have to do is be listening for the cue to text that's as easy as it is, and just like that, you could be winning that awesome prize. All the details at sportsnet.ca slash 960. Happy Father's Day from Wild Rose Brewery, wishing you and yours health and safety during these challenging times. We support you, the hardworking characters of Calgary and the rest of Alberta. Which way is Elliot Friedman leaning on his NHL awards votes? And why didn't he join us in his regular spot yesterday? That's when we come back. It's Pinder and Steinberg with Friedman next. Sportsnet 960 The Fan. This is Pinder and Steinberg. Time to hear from our NHL insider, Elliot Friedman. Elliot Friedman, brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. You're reopening, but will visitors come? Calgary Lock and Safe recommends hands-free doors for safety. Install now and pay when you can. Explore at calgarylockandsafe.com. Mr. Friedman, I'd usually give you a hard time if uh, you had to bail on our weekly Monday segment, but yesterday uh, that does not apply. Tell us what you were doing yesterday, a really cool thing that you and a bunch of the other Sportsnet crew were up to at the Rogers Center. I think that deserves some love. Well, what we did yesterday was, um, you know, Rogers, uh, first of all, the family for the 60th anniversary of Rogers uh, donated $60 million in charity towards some causes that really need it. And also, they've turned the uh, Rogers Center, the former Sky Dome, into a giant uh, center where we're packing up boxes for various food banks. So uh, yesterday, I was there. Uh, Chris Johnston and his wife um, were there. Uh, David Amber was there. And basically, you go, like, uh, Chris and I had the dollies, 
and you put a box on the dolly and you go by all the stations and they fill it up. And actually Chris Simpson was there too. She uh, uh, was helping like tape up the boxes once they were done and put them on the skids to get moved. And they're all being donated to the food bank. And I've got to tell you, like the biggest, strongest sports net guy, Dave Amber was given the smallest job. His job was to put two tins of tuna and three small things of Nutella into everybody's uh, box. And like the rest of us were sweating. <laughs> we're, we're like, uh, like I'm a, like, everyone's out of shape compared to David Amber. And he had the easiest job there. It was ridiculous, but you know what? Like we're all there to, to do some good. We had a good time. It was nice to see everybody social distancing and with masks, of course. I, uh, I actually heard we had CJ on about an hour ago and, uh, he said that uh, the Elliot beard was not contained by the mask. <laughs> it was enough that I wasn't putting uh, bad spores on anybody, but yes, the beard was popping uh, <laughs> out of it. There's, there's no question that is true. Did CJ tell you how he was like speeding with the dollies? Like no. it was crazy. I, I thought he was going to injure himself or somebody else. He was, uh, he was a wild man with those dollies. Hey, yeah. I, uh, I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest with you just to, to help out because I've been bored as all hell over the last number of months. I, yep. I've i been helping out at a grocery store a few nights a week uh, back here Good in Calgary. You, Pat. And I get to I get to take a cart around and, and fill grocery orders for mobile orders for people who don't want to come to the store. And mm-hmm. I uh, I drive that cart like it's going out of business. Like I that thing that thing gets a that thing gets good workout for me. Like it's I push it and then I hop on it because there's nobody in the store when I'm there. It's those carts can be pretty fun. You know, I got to tell you, Pat, like, that's a great idea. First of all, good on you for picking up the extra work. And, like, you know, like, as you see up close, like, the people who are working in those grocery stores, they're doing God's work right oh now. God. Like, that's that's a big deal for people. So good on you. The, the people, like, I, I'm just pushing a cart around and, and filling some orders. The people who are stocking shelves uh, from, I think they start at 11 and go till 7 a.m. Like, the amount that they are working right now and running around, it is insane. I've never seen anything like it. So, the those like the full time grocery workers who are doing that during this time, they deserve a huge tip of the hat. You're you're bang on. That is that is God's work and it is not easy. No, it's it's not easy work. It is definitely not easy work. What to, you know, I, I would suggest that making picks for the NHL wards uh, not as physically demanding, but mm-hmm. this is uh this is not an easy year to make picks on the heart and the Norris and all the different awards that the professional hockey writers association has to vote on they were due yesterday afternoon how uh, mm-hmm. how difficult was it getting your your ballots together this year well I, I, it was hard i'm i'm not going to lie to you there uh, pat it was it was really difficult uh, you know the three big ones are obviously those three um to me the norris was a was a two horse race it was john carlson it was roman yossi and to me the calder was a two horse race it was uh, quinn hughes and it was kale mccarr and and to me the um, the the heart trophy it was a four horse race, and it was uh, in alphabetical order. It was um, Leon Dreisaitl, it was Nathan McKinnon, it was Connor McDavid, and it was Artemi Panarin. And I have to tell you that um, you know I really believe that I, I've been wrestling a lot with Connor McDavid over the past few years. Mm-hmm. Like like I I think that when when he retires. He's going to go down as one of the greatest players ever to play the game. And we're going to look back at how he was handled in uh, 
in heart trophy voting and say, what on earth were we doing? Um, because I got to tell you, I don't think he gets enough consideration for the heart trophy. I, I really don't. And I've really started to wrestle with it. I, I started to wrestle with it two years ago and I'm, I'm wrestling even more with it now. And, you know, like, like I'll tell you this, like any one of those four guys could win it. And I think they're a really deserving winner. I won't have a single problem with any one of those four guys winning it. And I think one of those four will win it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think McDavid does not get enough consideration. And, um, and, I, and I hope it doesn't hurt Dreisaitl. Um, but I really feel that McDavid uh, does not get enough consideration for the heart and has not over the past couple of seasons. And I, and, and, and I, I wrestle with it. Uh, just as a voter. And I think when we look back at the early part of his career, we're going to look back and say, this guy did not get enough consideration mm -hmm. uh, over his career. So in saying that, we we, uh, we went around the horn here and, yesterday. And, and I didn't vote for him number one either, but I made sure he was there. Okay. Well, we and we went around the horn yesterday, and uh, we had two votes for McKinnon. If, if, we had, if we had votes, we had two theoretical number one votes for McKinnon and one for Panarin. Uh, care to tell us where your top billing went? Uh, I'm not. I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why not. Because you know the NHL just kind of says, "Can you keep as many of these as secret until they're announced?" Okay. And I, but every year I vote for one. I, I, every year I reveal one, and you know because I'm on in Vancouver tonight, uh, I, I feel that you know that's the one I'm going to reveal. And so I, I did vote Quinn Hughes for the Calder. Okay. Uh, he got my vote. I mean, like I'll say this: like my ballot was those four guys for the uh, heart. And I put Connor Hellebuck fifth. I felt that, you know, he deserved to have a heart vote this year. Um, you know, I, I thought he had an, an unbelievable year and really carried Winnipeg until they kind of righted themselves at the end. But, you know, I got to tell you, like, I, I think it's really tough. Like, I, I think the, a lot of the Edmonton vote this year is Dreisaitl over McDavid. I think that there's a lot of people who think that McKinnon um, deserves to have a lot of consideration. But I think where I am, like kind of in the East, I get a real sense that there's a lot of growth in Panarin. And, hmm. you know, one of the things I really had a, a, a tough thing with, um, Pat, is that in the past, I'm one of those people who feels that if you're not in the playoffs, you, you, it, it, you have to limit how much consideration you get for the heart. And I had a couple of people call me on that this year because I did some radio where I said, if the Rangers get in, I think Panarin might run away with this thing. And, you know, people said to me, where are you going with this? And, and I said, you know, I, I, I'm big on the Panarin train. I'm not going to lie about that. And their opinion was, you know, technically they didn't get in. They were the 11th seed. And, um, and are you going to hold yourself to that? And, you know, it was weird. I, I, like, I'm not a person who likes to, like, people sometimes lobby you, and lobbying's okay, but I think there's a limit. And, uh, you know, I was getting some pushback on it, and I was getting annoyed about it. But, you know, I think you have to be true and honest to yourself. So I, I, I will say that this, this, heart, this heart this year was the hardest one ever. I don't, I don't, I can't remember. Like, I'll just say it was those four guys, and Hellebuck was on my ballot. Mm. And, and all of our ballots go public. Uh, when when they're announced so I, you know we can talk about it then who i voted for number one yeah uh, and i will say also uh, pat i think i have a bit of a canadian bias not not for canadian players or or people who play in canada 
but I think I, because I watch them more, I tend to probably think about them more. Fair enough. What, how, uh, I'd be curious, like how, because you, you obviously take this really seriously and, and you've got a, a number of awards to vote on. So what goes into your voting criteria? What do you look at? How do you come to your conclusions? Who do you talk to? I, I'd be curious as to your actual process before making your final calls. Well, I think you do lots of things like, you know, like, like one of the things I, I look at is like reasonably, what are your, what are the expectations on your team uh, before the season? Um, and, you know, I, I think that could have hurt McKinnon this year, for example. I think everybody thought Colorado was going to be good. But then, you know, you look at all the injuries, and he's, what, 35 points ahead of everybody else on that team in scoring, and, you know, he was such a monster for that team. So I, I do look at, you know, you know, what, you know, do you play against the best players? Um, you know, what your role is. What are the circumstances of your team? How good was your team expected to be? Did, how did you play when injuries were around there? Um, like all those kinds of things. Um, you know, do you play with the best players? Um, like all these kind. usually when you're an MVP type of guy, you do. But mm-hmm. I think all, like I look at the underlying numbers and the data. Um, you know, I, I will tell you this year, like, you know, every, everybody at the beginning of this year thought Edmonton was going to be garbage. Everybody at the beginning of this year thought the Rangers were going to be garbage. And, you know, Dreisaitl and, and McDavid were incredible. The other thing, too, about McDavid is he didn't even think the guy was going to play. And, you know, he, he did unbelievable work to be ready. And, um, and, you know, the Rangers were supposed to be garbage, and Panarin was so good for them. Um, oh, it was like all those things, the data, everything goes into it. Every, yeah. every, everything goes into it. I'm, I know some people who pick solely on data. I don't. Um, I, I do go by some feel. Um, and, uh, I think that's important. Um, I try to take out reputation and things like that, but, um, you know, everybody's got their biases and, and I admit Pat, my bias is probably a bit more, not picking guys in Canadian teams, but because I see Canadian teams more and I, I probably am either easier or harder on them because I see them more. Okay. Fair enough. Elliot Friedman's with us from Hockey Night in Canada. Joins us Mondays uh, this week, Tuesday on Pinder and Steinberg and Fridays on the morning show with Boomer and the gang. Um, Switching gears, we got border news today as uh, we found out that non-essential travel will remain closed between Canada and the United States until at least July 21st. Now, that, that doesn't really impact the NHL all that much, but you did write over the weekend about visa and visa issues. Uh, we got border news today. We're still waiting on some sort of announcement or piece of news when it comes to maybe loosening the restriction when it comes to self-isolation re-entering Canada what's what's happening with all of this right now and and some of the technicalities involved in making decisions on hub cities and training camps well you know Chris Johnson is the one who's really been following this from our place and you had him on and I was working on the Buffalo stuff today and I know he was working on that and he thinks that basically everything that was announced today is probably good news for Canada increases the chance of Canada getting one hub um uh, you know that if you're allowed, if if Prime Minister Trudeau is going to say to uh, the provinces of British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario that we'll allow, we'll make the amendments that you're recommending and allow players to go from home to the rink, it definitely increases the chances of one of them getting a hub, and then we'll see. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, like the 
the June 21st thing about the work permit, there's a lot of players that aren't really thrilled about that, Pat. Like, they don't like that. They're, they're told that nothing's mandatory until July 10th, and now you're saying strongly encouraged by June 21st. I know some guys aren't thrilled, and I know what some, think, some guys really aren't thrilled about is, is that they're not crazy about taking, if you're in Europe, like taking two or three connections through airports and, and airplanes to get where you need to go. So I don't know where that's going to all work out, but um, I think the good news today for Canada is that it increased the chances of Canada getting a hub. Are you hearing more about like more and more players returning to their home cities or returning to North America, so on and so forth? Like, is that happening? Yeah, more? I think as we get later into June, I think that's going to happen. Okay. Yes, I think the Europeans wish there would be like a private flight as something. Like they're like you know like I gotta tell you like yesterday we did that uh, thing we were talking about and I wore a mask for four straight hours right like that's not a lot of fun and if you're coming over from uh, overseas and you gotta take three flights or whatever I I wouldn't be too thrilled about that either to be honest yeah no doubt about it and so it's funny when we talk about these two hub cities and and you're right CJ's been all over this and uh, right now we're assuming that. Everything goes according to plan. One will be in Vegas and one will be in Toronto. Mm-hmm. What, what's interesting is when I, I go back to kind of the, the the no man's land that we were in in March and April, and we were just kind of spitballing and speculating on what things might look like. And one of the things that we talked about when this hub city thing first became a reality was what what's going to be important. Testing was going to need to be important. Hotel capacity was going to be important. and And having low active cases was going to be important. Both Vegas and Toronto, not necessarily with low active cases. It looks like Ontario is coming around and, and the signs are encouraging. But I, I'm curious as to why that isn't as much of a consideration when actually selecting these hub cities. In ter- sorry, what you cut out for a second there, Pat? Well, in terms of the, the high cases in both Toronto and Vegas, how, how come the, the NHL is okay with naming those as hub cities even though cases are higher there than some of the other places that were in consideration? Well, I, I think that one of the thing is, um, uh, I, I think one of the things that I, I think they're worried about is like the the bubble. Like I think the bubble is as big a concern as the amount of cases. Okay. And you know, like you've got it. The one thing is you're gonna have twelve teams in these cities, right? Who can handle it best? You know, Vegas. You could block off a whole. Um, you could block off a whole hotel for these guys. And uh, it sounds like that's one of the things they're kind of looking at or a resort. And then you just bust them or whatever from there to the rink. And Toronto's got a whole host of places downtown. Plus all of the Toronto's got like, right. They've got the big rink and they've got the Rico where the American hockey league team plays and they've got not far away their practice facility. They're all close to each other. So I, I think you're looking at places that have, and also if these players are going to be shut down for two months, more, almost three, mm-hmm. th- they're going to want the best possible setup they can have. And, the, you know, unless you're going like Vegas, L.A., I, I, I just think, like, I know everybody in Western Canada is going to hate me for this, but Toronto probably has the best setup. And I mean, it's kind of hard. Like you're right; it's the biggest city in Canada. It's got a good setup for this type of thing. It's it's the truth. And and now you're going to be thrown out of Alberta for this. But <laughs> and the other thing too is, and, and and I do believe this, Pat. It's that 
if this is for TV, and I, I do think a lot of this is for TV, put your Eastern teams, put people where people are used to watching them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you like? Now, I, I will say this: I had an interesting conversation about this yesterday. Like this whole thing about Vegas has to play East and the other one has to play West. Um, I, I think that's crazy. You put your Eastern teams in your Eastern time zone where people are used to watching them, and you put your Western teams in your Western time zone where the Western fans are used to watching them. Like, I, I don't get why you would mix this up. Now, the one thing someone did told, tell me is that there is concern. Like, this bubble is going to have to be a lot tighter than I think we all realize. And they're worried about the temptation for players from, like, Toronto or Vegas to going to visit their families if they're there. Right. And I think that's one thing they want to block away. But I think generally the preference is have the Eastern teams, in a, like, have those teams in a close time zone so their fans are used to watching them at a certain time. They don't make the players play. Like, you know, Pinder last week was saying, who cares if the Toronto, if the teams play at 10 in the morning? Well, like, do you want, do you want to be eating your meal at 630 and taking your morning, taking like your warm up at 830? No, you don't. So like, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here is try to make it as normal as possible, especially for your TV viewers. One more on this subject before we get to your reporting on the Buffalo situation, which you've been all over today. Just a, a look ahead. A week from Friday is the draft lottery. And, and I would assume that, yeah, it's probably going to be a, a pretty big made-for-TV event and, and a pretty big deal for us at the network. Is Are, are we expecting, like, is that, a, uh, is that a good ballpark for when we might get a schedule release from the NHL? Like, do we, do we, see, do we see that as a really big day for the NHL, the draft lottery on the 26th? I, don't, I, I think it all depends on... Um, um, I, I think that it all depends on how long it takes to get these negotiations done both in terms of the protocols and the framework of a CBA. Like, I think if we're going to want to start July 10th, you're probably going to have to have a vote by the end of June. Right. So like, do you really feel that you're in a point where you get everything done? I think you can look forward to triple headers pretty much every day. And, and we'll go from there. Uh, I know that CJ had said that um, to get, you know, all the best, the format that they're done, it would take 68 days. So they kind of know what they're looking at there, and then they just have to make it work, right? So um, I think you're looking at triple headers every day, but I bet you won't see a schedule probably until they know if everything's going to get done right. and the players are coming back. A couple more with Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night. What what happened between two weeks ago or so when Kim Pagula said Jason Botterill will be back as general manager between then and now, this morning, he is fired as GM of the Sabres. Uh, take us into what you know about how this decision all came to be. Well, I, I think we're, we, I was surprised, not that it happened, but I was surprised at the timing because of what you mentioned there, Pat. Like, just that the fact that this was going to, uh, that they had announced he was going to be the GM. I, I think there were some philosophical differences between Botterill and the Pagulas. And I, I think when Kevin Adams was hired uh, earlier this year, there were some people who said that, you know, hey, this is not going to be good for Botterill. And, you know, one of the things that if you look at the article in The Athletic that Tim Graham did on the Pagulas that certainly was not flattering to them back in April, uh, one of the things she talked about was basically that they hired people that they made mistakes with and they would be correcting them. And someone sent me that quote and said, you watch out for this. Like, this is a big deal for hockey. They're going to be making changes. And, you know, Botterill had two years left. They fired a lot of people there, like Tim Murray, 
uh, like Rex Ryan on the football side, who had lots of term left and they spent a lot of money. And I think most people thought they would give Botterill another year. But I, I do believe that they had an, or a thorough organizational review uh, over the winter, and they decided they wanted to make some changes. And I think Botterill fought back on those. And, you know, um, I, I definitely think that there was a, a major philosophical difference that happened over the last little while, and that was the reason that some of these changes were made. Um, but I, but guys had warned me that the Pagulas were tired of losing, and they felt that some of the people that got recommended to them uh, were bad choices or they were given bad advice, and they basically just said, we're doing this our way now. And if you look, like Ralph Kruger obviously has some hockey pedigree, but not a ton in the NHL, mm-hmm. and and Kevin Adams is a guy they've known for a decade. And I think that's not only going to be the way they do it in hockey. I think that's going to be the way they do it in a few places. And so what else? Because you've been doing a ton of reporting leading up to our, our chat today. There's It, it isn't just Botterill who's out. What else are we talking about in terms of some rather sweeping changes in Buffalo? Well, I think that if you look, it's um, like a lot of their, like his, his two assistant GMs, Randy Sexton and Steve Greeley, it's their American Hockey League coach, Chris Taylor, and his staff. And that team had not been very good, but it improved under uh, Taylor's coaching. And it's their director of amateur scouting, Ryan Jankowski, and a ton of his staff. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, big, big group. Like, it's, it's, it's like a major, major turnover. Like, it's an ugly, ugly day. I've gotten a ton of texts today from people. The uh, and and a last thought on this, like it's that that's that's a pretty that's a pretty loyal group of fans in Buffalo. They they want nothing more than to love their team. Uh, it's it's hard to drive fans away in Buffalo. They, they, they've got a lot of they, they've got a lot of work to do to kind of bring back that public trust with Sabres fans, don't they? Well, you know it's amazing. Like I was there at that press conference when they took over, and they were hailed like the heroic conquering army, right? And uh, and it's unbelievable to see what's happening. You're right, Pat. Like, that's a great hockey market. Like, those are great fans. They love their hockey. Um, they, you know, even if the, if the Sabres are in or they're out, like, those fans, they watch hockey. And uh, they deserve better. It's, um, it's, it's very, very disappointing. And, you know, like, I mean, like, they're, they're starting from a position of skepticism, right? Like, people just aren't buying, you know, what they're selling. And the only thing that's going to change it is, um, is, is winning. That's yep. the only thing that's going to do. Mr. Friedman, a pleasure as always. Uh, awesome work yesterday at the Rogers Center. That was really cool to see and uh, great stuff as always reporting on things today. Appreciate the time as always, my friend. We'll talk next week. And just tell uh, next time, uh, tell Amber to take a tougher job, okay? <laughs> I will. Next time he's, I'll, I'll get Will to tell him that later on this week. <laughs> okay. See you, Fridge. All right, bye. Elliot Friedman, brought to you by Calgary Lock and Safe. You're reopening, but will visitors come? Calgary Lock and Safe recommends hands-free doors for safety. Install now and pay when you can. Explore at calgarylockandsafe.com. Okay, good stuff as always from Elliot Friedman. Joined us on this Tuesday as opposed to yesterday. His regular spot was uh, doing some work with the Food Bank in Toronto and a national food drive at the Rogers Centre with some of the other Sportsnet folks. It was pretty cool stuff, so uh, good to have him on today. 
Aaron Ekblad went number one overall in the 2014 NHL draft. He won the Calder Trophy the following year. But for me, doesn't even sniff the number one position as we look back to six years ago. Another NHL redraft coming up next as we move into hour three of Pinder and Steinberg around the corner. Sportsnet 960, the fan. The superstars, the bus, the blockbuster trades. Pinder and Steinberg revisit another NHL draft. We're moving closer to present day, gentlemen. Today, focusing on in on the 2014 NHL draft as we welcome you back to Pinder and Steinberg. It's Pat Steinberg, Peter Klein, Logan Gordon along with you as we look back on another NHL draft. We started this all the way back with the 1997 NHL draft, and now we're up to 2014. Hopefully your afternoon is going along very nicely. Uh, we got lots still to come on the program today before we hand it over to Tim and Sid at 6 o'clock in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll hear from both Chris Johnston and Ellie at Friedman, our NHL insiders, on the same day today. Uh, but right now, it's time to redraft 2014. Gentlemen, the host city was Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was a really fun draft to attend. It was a big draft for the Calgary Flames. They have their highest ever selection since being in the city of Calgary at number four overall. The number one overall pick was held by the Florida Panthers. They would use it on Aaron Ekblad. But as we redraft the top five for me... And Ekblad's a full-time NHLer. He's a, he's a good defenseman. Mm -hmm. He's a Calder Trophy winner. But, guys, Ekblad didn't sniff number one when I was going back to redraft. In fact, uh, he was not even really in my top five conversation. Before we get into who ended up being our number one picks and, and redrafting our top five, uh, how close did Ekblad come for you guys in, in being in the number one or even the top five conversation? Honestly, didn't give it much consideration. Um, about as much as me. So, yeah, certainly not number one. And I would be interested to see where he would fall if we drafted this beyond five. Because uh, to, to be perfectly frank, he wasn't really in the, the quick list of honorable mentions for top five for me either. A fine, fine defenseman, but this is a pretty good draft with some high-end talent in it. And he, he just kind of, after a, a strong first season, has kind of leveled off a, a little bit more than I think people were expecting. So, no, again, fine NHL. Or I don't think there are major regrets going with him at number one, and at the time it was a lock, uh, but certainly not a top five for me now. Logs? No, not uh, – didn't make my top five, wasn't uh... – in much consideration for it. And you know what? He's probably the best defenseman out of this draft class too. The other, I mean, Sanheim's turned yeah. into a pretty good defender and, and I think he's got a chance to maybe be the best defenseman out of this draft. Um, Tony D'Angelo came out of this draft. Can't wait for that podcast. Uh, Brandon, <laughs> Brandon. How about that's the last time we mentioned Tony D'Angelo? Fair enough. Hey, I can't help that he was in the draft. Uh, Marcus Peterson, Brandon Montour both came from this draft, but I think Aaron Ekblad, is the yep. uh, is the best defenseman from this class, but that doesn't make him a top five pick. In in fact, it's it's a, a lot of forwards. So this is a pretty deep group at forward. Not a great goaltending or defense year, but a lot of really good forwards. So, in saying that, how difficult was the number one overall pick for you? If you were to redraft today, how difficult was it saying who should have gone number one overall? It wasn't that difficult for me. It was close, but in the end, the position won out. But I'm curious as to where it was for you guys. It wasn't It wasn't overly close. I, I gave it a, a bit of thought just because it was just right away, okay, boom, this guy's number one. And then, well, 
I should at least look at this. Uh, but beyond that, th there wasn't a ton. So it, it was it was relatively easy for me for number one, but definitely the, the guy at number two, I thought, warranted a, at least a bit of a deeper dive before I just automatically gave number one to who I did. Are you, and, and before we get to you, Logo, are you going dry saddle one? Yes, yeah, that's accurate, yeah. And, and I also have dry saddle as my, that'll make up for the angry Oiler fans who were uh, upset at us for not <laughs> giving him our number one heart trophy vote yesterday. Uh, I think dry saddle is the clear cut. Close, but still clear cut. Number one overall pick from 2014, but that's me and Klein. Logo, are you unanimous on that? Yeah, look, with all due respect to uh, who my number two is and is a pretty good player there, the... The guy that's number one is in heart trophy consideration and uh, is really uh, turned into quite a, a player and to outscore the field like he did this year and appears to have that ability to do it every year. It was really hard not to put dry silent number one. My, I think we're yeah. all I think we're all on the same page then that Pasternak is the guy that was given the the most consideration for also going number one. Like dry saddle was the number three overall pick in 2014. Pasternak was the 25th overall pick to the Bruins, and Boston nailed that one. Here's a guy who's a 50 goal threat every year on a, a big part of one of the most complete, if not the most complete line in the NHL with Bergeron and Marchand. For me, Pasternak also the clear-cut number two, and I did give some consideration to him going one, but he's a clear-cut winger, and Dreisaitl has grown into his role as a line-driving center in, in Edmonton. So that's why it's still pretty clear-cut, Dreisaitl one, Pasternak two. But we're all, like, are our are, are one-twos differing anywhere? Are we all on the nope. same page there? No, I'm I'm with you. Yeah, it's it's Pasternak. I think after that it, it got pretty interesting for for three, four, and five. But um, uh, I think it's not necessarily Ovechkin, Malkin, where it was okay. This guy's obviously one. This guy's obviously two. But uh, I, I think the top two were pretty clear for me. Yeah, one two was was a slam dunk for me. Okay. Same two, dry settle Pasternak. So that is unanimous, and I think where it becomes interesting is who you go number three overall. So as we're redrafting 2014, we got Drysaddle 1, Pasternak 2, who were 3 and 25 overall, respectively. Where did you go, Logo, for your third overall pick? Uh, my third overall pick went to Braden Point uh, from the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, I, I went back and forth between him and, and Dylan Larkin, but... Uh, the gap between games played and now points, uh, both of them at center. Uh, point has just really come on and I think exceeded the offensive ceiling that uh, Dylan Larkin has and has really just become more of a, an all-around player for me. I understand he plays on a, a considerably better team since he started in the NHL than, than Dylan Larkin has, but uh, Larkin kind of you know has steadied around that 70, 60-point-a-year guy. Uh, point last season with 92 points. He had 64 and 66 this season and really looks like he could be a point per game uh, sort of player. So I went with Braden Point at number three. Kleiner? Uh, I also went Braden Point at You're three. You're unanimous uh, on three, too. Okay. Oh wow! Yeah, we're, we're well. We had a lot. We had a bit of dissension yesterday with the the heart. So it's good that we're we're uh, keeping it the same on this one. But no, I'm uh, I'm with logo and this one. And this is going to be a common theme for I think the rest of them. There is a a bit of projecting that that goes along with this as well. And it does seem like Braden Point is, is just getting better and better. And uh, a real playmaker in this league has speed to burn. Just just uh, a guy who I, I like a lot of his game. So I, I'm going to go with Braden Point here as well. Yeah, yeah. Point. 
point. Point is the guy that, you know, like Pasternak and Dreisaitl are currently no questions asked elite. And I think Braden Point, if he's not there right now, I think he's trending in that direction of, of being in that same category. You went through the points yeah. already. Like 92 last year, he was probably going to be in the 80 to 85 again this year when it was all said and done. Here, here's a guy that has has well exceeded where he was drafted. Let's not forget the Lightning got Braden Point 79th overall in the third round, and we've all got him as the third best player from that draft. And and you know the gap between him, Pasternak, and Drysaddle isn't huge. He he would be a number one center on a lot of teams. In Tampa, there's also that Stamkos guy who uh, <laughs> you know gives him a pretty good one-two punch down the middle right now. And point is, Point is a really good hockey player, and yeah. and I had him. I'm with you, Logo. I had him ahead of Dylan Larkin. I think Larkin deserves a little more love, and I, and I think that if Larkin wasn't playing for the bulk of his career in this league on just a dreadful Red Wings team. I think he'd be giving a little bit, getting a little bit more love. Like if if Larkin went to Tampa, or if Larkin went to Edmonton, or if Larkin went somewhere else in this same conversation, I think we'd be talking about him a little bit differently. I think he's got a really good contract in Detroit going forward, um, and him going him going number four again. That's two centers. Point Larkin. I've got Larkin going right after Point. I think you do too, Logo. Is that the way you're going? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Larkin was my so, my four. Kleiner, are we? Making Making it unanimous with our top four, then? Uh, no, actually, we're not. Um, I, I I have Larkin in my top five, and I like Dylan Larkin a lot. But th- there is a bit of a a bias, I suppose, when it comes to to Detroit and just how bad they've been for the last couple of years. And uh, absolutely none of that is is Dylan Larkin's fault. <laughs> I just haven't seen him adjust to the situations that that you want to see with a, a top five pick or a top four pick i guess in this case uh so i i went uh, i went victor arvidson at number four j- just a guy who can put 30 goals in on a, a year in year out basis uh, might have struggled to get there this year because um because of games played but 34 29 31 the last three years has really turned into a a solid solid goal scorer and someone who is just miserable to play against and i think is the type of player this is super cliche sounding but kind of the type of player you can win with and the type of player who's going to cause teams a, a lot of problems come playoff time so i, I went with victor arvidson ahead of dylan larkin so your your top five would be dry saddle pasternak point arvidson larkin yes uh it's funny because you go you go arvidson four and uh, logo let out a audible whoa logo i've got i've got arvidson as my five i went dry saddle pasternak point larkin arvidson um, our, that that line when Nashville is at their best, that line of Johansson, Forsberg, and Arvidsson is kind of the Boston perfection line light. It's not quite yep. there, but they do so many of the same things that Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand do, just maybe at a a little bit of a lesser level. Not a massive step down, but they're all good in the two way game. They can play in any situation. And there's a couple of guys, if not all three of them, that are 30 goal threats every single year. For Arvidsson to go in the fourth round, 112th overall, and for a Nashville team that has had a ton of trouble drafting and developing forwards, Arvidsson's one of their best forward success stories ever, and he's not even a first-round pick. So I I had Arvidsson as my number five with Larkin going number four. So I'm curious, and and I'm I'm fascinated to see where you go, Logs. Who do you – like, are you uh, not not as on the Arvidsson train as we are? 
I look, I, I like Victor Arvidsson, and the last two years, though, for me, haven't been uh, quite as, as strong as the, the two before it. If you were talking about if Victor Arvidsson had put up the, the type of seasons he did in 16, 17, and 17, 18, where he's a 30 and 30 guy, uh, absolutely does he get, find a way into my top five. But the last two years, two seasons ago with 34 goals, don't be wrong, really respectable. Only 14 assists and then a little bit more, you know, backwards this year at a 15 and 13 goals and assists in just 58 games two seasons ago. Uh, if he can get back to that 30 and 30 pace, he's certainly uh, a guy that, that will find his way higher for me. But the last two seasons have been a, a little bit disappointing for me, even though there's a 30 goal season in there. So end the suspense. Who do you have as your five? Uh, Nick Ehlers is my five. Okay. And, and Ehlers yeah. has turned into a really good player. I, a little bit of a slower start to his tenure in Winnipeg, but he's turned into a really good player. And, and he's he's on the fringe of my top five, too. So Yeah, 20 goals every year except for the first year in the league. Uh, for me, he's becoming a, a number one winger in Winnipeg, and he's kind of that, uh, you know, he's not going to have an elite level finish like David Pasternak or anything like that, but if you get a guy like him, you know, Doing a little bit of everything for you, a, a be all winger for you, if you will. Uh, I'd be, I think Ehlers is my five. So we're pretty, and Ehlers is still what the number five scoring player out of this draft so far. He's got 257 yep. in 369, and he's he's starting to come on more offensively. So we've got we're unanimous on four of our top five in in some order or another. All three of us have Drysaddle, Pasternak, Point, and Larkin in our top five. Uh, Kleiner and I have Arvidsson in our top five. Uh, Logo does not, and he's got Ehlers. Um, and really, like it's it's kind of there's not a lot else that I. The only other guy that I gave consideration getting into the top five was William Nylander in Toronto, and not so much yeah. for what he's done, but more so for the the way he's trending. Like. Nylander, I, I think, as, as much as there was a lot of talk about the contract impasse that he had with the Leafs. And, the know, holdout. The, the, exactly. The, the holdout that he had last year and, and getting signed at the 11th hour. We're still talking about a guy that I think is good for 70 points a season, if not more, for the rest of his career. Is he, is he better than Marner? Is he better than Matthews? No, but he's still a really good player. And, and he scratched, uh, along with Ehlers, he, he scratched the surface of getting in the top five for me. Am I missing anybody else who, who should be in that top five conversation from this draft? Uh, mm. I don't think so. I, 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 think... I pushed Ekblad up a bit. Like, he wasn't uh, like you know, cascading into my top five. He wasn't, you know, making a hard push or anything like that, but he, he he's still up there for me as a, you know, a mid, like he's certainly not like 10th or anything like that. I mean, he's still a guy that's close to 40 points every season from a defensive standpoint, playing a ton of minutes. And I believe is the captain in Florida. Um, I might be wrong on that one. Right I can't on remember. Um, but, you know, he, like, I mean, for still a defenseman, I mean, is he the best player in the draft anymore? No, he's certainly not. But for a defenseman that plays the minutes he does Barkov and is the has been really yeah, correct uh, and has been really consistent on a year by year basis since he came in as an 18 year old, uh, he still gets some consideration for me for uh, being in the conversation at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think like 20 years from now, when we look back on this, I, I think guys like. Kevin Fiala might be able to work their way into that conversation because I think Fiala is really starting to figure some things out. Uh, but but as as we sit here right now, um, I, I don't. Uh, uh, 
yeah, I, I don't see anyone aside from Ehlers and Nylander really, really scratching the the top five and maybe Ekblad as well. Decent. This is the the more recent we get, the more projection that goes into it and the more that needs to be written goes into that. Like we're talking about guys that are only four or five years into their NHL careers. So, so much still needs to be played out in front of us before we can definitively like the 1997 yeah. draft. We can definitively do that. Hell, the 2000 and 2008, 2009 draft, you can basically definitively make these decisions. Once you're into in the last five or six drafts, there's still a lot that needs to play out in front of you, but some decent players that came from the later rounds. We've already talked about Arvidsson mm-hmm. and Point. They're fifth, uh, sorry, fourth and third round picks, respectively. Kevin LeBanc has, I know that San Jose struggled this year, but I love that acquisition of LeBanc at the at the deadline, and, and I think, no, sorry, that was somebody else. I I I really like LeBanc though. He's turned into one of the really good goal scorers in this league, and and he's a sixth round pick. Did, uh, was LeBanc year. the one that signed the grossly underpaid contract yes, one, last one year? One year at one million yeah. dollars. Yeah. I'm sure, your other players were happy well, about that, Kev. But <laughs> no, agreed. Good player. I was thinking of Barkley Goodrow as who got traded for the first rounder mm. at the, at the LeBanc right. still in San Jose. I was getting yeah. him, but LeBanc like. LeBanc has got one of the most effortlessly accurate, dangerous shots from the outside in the NHL, yeah. and I think that's going to become more and more of a threat as time goes along. That's a sixth-round pick. Danton Heinen's an everyday player on the NHL's best team in Boston. He was a fourth-round pick of the Bruins. Andre Kasha, seventh-rounder in Anaheim. Victor Olofsson, who's turned into a full-timer in Buffalo, that's a seventh-round pick. There's, If you can get Kasha and Olofsson both in the seventh round, that's pretty good. Decent year for sleepers in 2014. Yeah. Um, also, someone who played a, a pretty important role on the, the Stanley Cup winners with the St. Louis Blues, Sammy Blay, has turned himself into a, a pretty solid middle six forward in the National Hockey League, still only at 83 games played. Um, and the, the point total is never going to wow you. But he has certainly turned himself into a, a useful player in the National Hockey League. And you get that at 176 overall. Uh, I think you're living pretty good. Yeah, only one I would add, and it's more like you said, Pat, because uh, we can do future considerations still mm-hmm. at this point, is Igor Shesterkin, uh, the Rangers goaltender at uh, 118th overall mm-hmm. in round four, looking like the guy before he got hurt uh, to potentially take over from Lundquist in New York. If that's the case and you get him in the fourth round, you're, you're probably pretty happy. And really, other than, other than him, and I mean, I guess... Elvis Merzlikens has turned into, you know, a very interesting player in Columbus and, and might be their guy going forward. And I guess Thatcher Demko has has a pretty good career in front of him or looks like he's got a pretty good career in front of him in Vancouver. Not it's it's tough. We're still too early to really be looking ahead at goalies because it's such a bizarre position. But those are the three New York, Vancouver, and Columbus. Merzlikens, Shesterkin, and Demko. Those are the three goalies that we're talking about in this draft, right? Yeah, um, and, and I think going forward, we're not going to have many conversations. Wow, look at this goalie class, because we're just, like you said, we, we don't have enough intel. The most games played by any of the goalies in this is Thatcher Demko at 37, and that's just because Markstrom got hurt this year. So uh, a couple other guys who might make a bit of noise, uh, Kapo Kakinen bounced, um, had a couple games with Minnesota. Mm-hmm. That one, you might just remember him because his name sounds so familiar with Kapo Kako. Uh, and also uh, Nedeljkovic with the Carolina Hurricanes might 
be something there, but uh, through six games, tough to get a read on that. But no, the goalie goalie pickings are going to be slim, uh, I think, from here on out, because we just don't know yet with a lot of these guys. And I guess Sorokin's in the conversation if the Islanders can ever convince him to come over, but he might be a, a lifetimer in the K. If, yeah. they, if they can get him to come over, though, you're right. That could be a really good one, too. And he's put up some really good numbers in Russia, which Goldman, is Gold medal winning goaltender, I believe, for Russia. And I believe that's correct. And the, um, you know, KHL to NHL doesn't always translate, but pretty darn, uh, pretty darn good for what we've seen from Sorokin so far in the KHL. Tough, uh, tough draft year for the New York Islanders. Again, nothing is set in stone, but there are two first round picks, Michael Dal Cole, Josh Hosang. Neither have really, Ugh. I, Hosang's an interesting one to me. It feels like they're just. It feels like Hosang needs a new organization, and and I still think there's a lot there. I, I know there's a lot of talk about off ice stuff or attitude or whatever. I just wonder if there's a personality clash there between him and the Islanders, specifically him and and Lou Lamorello. Lamorello is very old school and and only does thing a certain things a certain way. And and if you are not on board with that or or don't show that you're on board with that early. You're kind of in rough, so I feel like Hosang needs a new organization to before we can really decide what he is. Um, but Dal Cole, yeah. who was the fifth overall pick, does not look like he's going to be an impact NHLer. Again, that could change, but I, I don't think I'm off base in saying that. Could could be a tough first round for the New York Islanders from 2014. And I remember, uh, because this was the first draft where I was starting to get on air a little bit more here and was starting to work on this uh, a little more. And Del Cole, that was the easiest pick in the entire draft. That one in the flames, really. It, it was going to be the, the top three. You might mix around a little bit, probably not. But Reinhardt, Ekblad, there was some conversation there. And then the flames at four were going to get whichever one of Bennett um, and Dreisaitl the Oilers didn't go with. And then the Islanders, it was in pen from like the second the draft lottery was done that Del Cole was going to be there at five. And I remember thinking at the time that the Hosang pick was so smart because you have Del Cole, who's a safe, uh, just a, a safe pick, of course. So now go with the guy who has a bit of the maybe isn't going to mesh well in all the organizations, a bit more of a lottery ticket. I thought that was a, a great way to spend their first round. And turns out uh, Del Cole is not at least to this point, not the player that anyone was expecting when he was the lock at five. Okay. The one guy that we really haven't discussed as of yet, or the one team we really haven't discussed as of yet is Calgary. This was not a good draft for the flames. And Uh, and in fairness, it's the last bad draft they've had. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 all look to be really promising drafts for this team. Uh, 14, not so good. This is this is a very technically this is a Brad Tree Living draft, like based on who was the GM at the time. But I I at no point have I ever looked at this and said to myself, this is a Brad Tree Living draft. He'd been on the job for like five and a half weeks at the time. Uh, this is a Brian Burke draft. Brian Burke was still the man in in charge of the hockey operations department, and he had put this draft in motion. I think you can really start to look because Brad Tree Living has has a number of really good strengths since he's taken over as GM of the team, and one of them, perhaps most chiefly important, is is the work that he's done drafting. And and you can't sit here and convince me that the work that Brad has done 
from 15 to now in the draft and then look at 2014 and say, well, I mean, they're the same guy. Like it just, it doesn't make any sense to me. So I I don't feel like Brad was really able to get his, his fingerprints on this draft class enough. Sam Bennett is a controversial one. He's a guy that people have been waiting for more of. And he had the highest expectations potentially of any Flames pick ever selected because he was the highest ever pick selected since this team has gotten to Calgary. He has not turned into what the number four overall pick should be or or what you'd expect from a number four overall pick. And that is fair. And I I don't think he ever will. I I think it's, I think Sam Bennett is entering into is what he is territory. I don't think he's there yet. I don't think the book has been written. I don't think you're sending it off to the publishers yet, but I would be surprised if Bennett turns into a big time impact, you know, 30 goal, 70 point guy, like maybe was projected when he was selected. I think we're talking about, uh, probably a, an effective middle six winger is where this guy is is most likely going to project with the caveat that it's still early enough that that could change and he's still young enough that that could change. But in saying all that, guys are like, I, I don't think it's fair to criticize the Flames for taking Bennett there. Like at the time, nobody thought anything of it. At the time, Flames fans were ecstatic about it. At the time, everybody thought it was a no-brainer for the Flames to go number four. So we can look back and say it hasn't worked out. We can look back and say he hasn't lived up to expectations. But I don't necessarily think it's fair to look back and say the Flames botched that pick because that's who they should have picked at the time. Yeah, no, exactly. Like it's that was that was the pick to make for the Flames, and there was there wasn't any. Oh well, maybe Nikolai. Like there wasn't there wasn't any of that. It, this was whoever was left between Drysaddle and Bennett. That's who the Flames were were going to get, and it ends up being Sam Bennett. And it, it has not worked out, Pat. Like you said, you're not sending it to the publisher, but you're at least like handing it out to a couple people you really respect before you send it in. Like it's. It's pretty well there. Uh, there could absolutely be be some change at some point, but no, this was this was obvious to the point where NHL Central Scouting had Sam Bennett as their number one North American skater going into this draft. Uh, the, the Florida Panthers' need was on on the blue line, and then the Sabers go the way they go. But Sam Bennett was the number one player for NHL Central Scouting going into this uh, out of North American skaters. So it's not like the Flames made a giant reach and could have got this guy in the third round, a la uh, Mark Jankowski and some of the, the criticism to them a couple years before. This was this was the obvious pick to click for the, the Flames, and it's just not working out. No, the Bennett one is a tough one, and it doesn't get any easier based on the fact that the rest of the draft class has uh, combined zero games with the organization, and I don't think that you're uh, looking at any of those guys to potentially break that streak. Um, you, you made a good point, Pete, about him being the number one North American-ranked skater, and uh, I, I think the important thing here to, to preface this is even if it wasn't Calgary at four, he, that's probably where Sam Bennett was going, regardless exactly. of the team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So th- th- that's a tough spot to be in because you know it's it's so obvious you can't go wrong until until it goes wrong. And you know I I I have I struggle with Bennett a lot of times because there's nights where he's invisible and then there's nights where he looks like he could set the world on fire. And I'm sure that that's what the organization struggles with too because. You know, these are still guys, you know, you look at Casper Kapanen, a guy that got traded from Pittsburgh 
to Toronto and is now an impact forward there. And, you know, it, it's hard because you still see those flashes and you sit there and you go, man, if I trade him and I don't get enough in, in return and he goes on to do something there, because there is still that potential and there's still that, you know, a bit to be unwritten about what's going forward. But I, I do think we're getting near the territory of, you know, this is just kind of what, what Sam is at this level. Is it disappointing that the the highest draft pick in the organization's history uh, is going to go that way? Yeah, it's it's frustrating and it's disappointing. But, you know, sooner than later, right. you know, we're at a point where he's been passed over by, you know, even a guy like Andrew Mangiapane, who is a much later draft pick than him, and has found a way to come in and do it. And sooner or later, you just can't sit on your laurels anymore. And we mentioned it with Josh Hosang and, and Michael Dalcole. And uh, you're just going to have to come to the part where they're not part of the organization anymore. And maybe a different spot is what helps him. Maybe not. We don't know. The rest of this draft for the Flames, I, I, I won't criticize oh. them for taking Bennett at, uh, at four because that was the right pick at the time. I, I will I will be a little more critical on the rest of that draft though. Like Mason McDonald at two, I still don't understand how like he, he wasn't even thought to be the best goaltender in that draft class in twenty fourteen, knowing how difficult goaltenders are to project. And and you know, Thatcher Demko was the guy and he was right there, and they go McDonald two picks before him. That made no sense. They somehow turned Reto Berra into a second round pick at the trade deadline in twenty fourteen. And then they turned that second-round pick from Colorado into Hunter Smith, a guy who was was barely an impact maker in the Ontario Hockey League, or barely a, a massive impact maker in the Ontario Hockey League. He never scratched point per game in the OHL. How dare with, you? He made a plenty of impact in the penalty box. <laughs> he did. He did <laughs> combine for two hundred and twenty-two minutes. And he was in his tall. I, like I, I, th- yeah. th- th- these don't make sense in the second round. Brandon Hickey, okay. I don't think Hickey is ever going to turn into an impact NHLer. Of the guys they picked, Hickey probably has the best chance in another organization now to maybe scratch the NHL one day. He's just into his pro career after finishing uh, his his time in college at BU. But I mean, and, and and then when you get into the sixth and seventh round, I like Adam Oldis Matson as a professional hockey player. I don't think he's going to be an NHLer. Austin Carroll not going to be an NHLer, I don't believe. But you know, just the the second, the two second round picks are hard to wrap your head around in McDonald and Smith. It just those ones when you think of of, and it's not even like the Braden Point pick that yeah they could have got Point, but a bunch of teams passed on him twice or three. times. Everybody, yeah, it's, everybody it's, did. But it's just those picks where they got them, I, I still they, they don't make any sense to me. They didn't make a ton of sense at the time. They make even less sense today. Yeah, if you want uh, proof that this is a Brian Burke draft, just see Smith comma Hunter. Like that that's that is the prototypical Brian Burke player. Just a, a huge Say dude. the word. And say the word. Truculent. There you tr- go. Truculent. A truculent player. I, I will say I remember that the Flames development camp after he dangled some poor soul uh, at the thing and I thought sold kid's going to be a star. This is going to be great. Uh, and now he, I don't believe he's playing professional hockey. Uh, so I, I you know, swing and a miss on that one too, but no, even like just for, for Hunter Smith and McDonald, even if you don't want to consider the brain point thing, because there was concerns about size and whatnot, three of the four players drafted after Hunter Smith are already at a hundred games in the NHL with uh, Brandon Montour, Ryan Donato and Christian Dvorak. Like those are all guys who would have been very productive, I, I think, for the Flames organization. And, and Smith 
it's it's such a a truculent big dude pick that it just has Brian Burke dripping all over it. Well, and and you know, had the Flames not gone on to drastically change their draft philosophy from 2015 on and drastically improve in what they're turning out in not even the first round, but in into the second and beyond rounds, then you could have maybe made a, a more convincing argument that, that Brad Tree Living was the guy in charge of the 14 draft. But when you see the stark contrast from 14 to 15 and what they've done from 15 cents, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Of course he didn't. And, you know, Brian Burke, and this is not a, a let's, let's walk all over Berkey thing. It's not. He's a great contributor no. to our morning show, and he's built the Stanley Cup. Like, the guy, the guy knows hockey more than, you know, he's forgotten more about the sport than we ever have. But his draft record in his short time kind of being the guy making those decisions with the Flames was not very good. And this 2014 draft was a missed opportunity for the Flames kind of in year two of their official rebuild. They could have done better than what they did. And that's taken the Bennett pick out of it because we've all agreed that it's probably a little too convenient to criticize the Flames for taking Bennett where they took him when he was the obvious pick. It's the rest of the draft and especially those two second round picks that may be a little bit more infuriating when it comes to Calgary Flames. So I uh, look and and. You know, Brad Tree Living is not a perfect general manager either. There, are the, we we have lots of things that any GM is, has strengths and and then areas that get criticized a little bit more. One of the areas that I think Brad Tree Living has transformed this organization in, and the main reason why I think he should, because there's plenty of people and I see it all the time, and I saw it plenty throughout the season when we were still playing hockey. I got it all the time. It's time to fire Tree Living. Get this guy out of here. I don't think it's the time to do that. I don't. I, as, as, as much as I think that you can levy some criticism on some of the trades or, or the work in unrestricted free agency, his work managing the cap from an internal perspective and specifically his work drafting and developing players and the job this organization has done since the new management group took over in 2014 and specifically got their hands all over this thing in 2015 – since that time, I, like th- they have set this team up to be significantly more successful, and that's why I, I don't believe it's time for a, a management change, even if this team had missed the playoffs this year. I, I still think that there's plenty of reason to suggest that this group has put the team in a in a better spot today than when they first took over and when Trey Living first took over. So I, I still think that he um, has has some runway or should have some runway left based on the job that he's done drafting alone and. We'll get more into that as we move towards the 2015 and beyond drafts. We'll do 2015 likely on Thursday. That is another edition. Well done, gentlemen, of our 20 uh, of our NHL redrafts. Looking back at the 2014 NHL draft. Couple of texts at 960-960. Um, still remember that first playoff run when Bennett came in and we all thought, man, do we have something here? And then he scored 20 and then... Yeah, you just cannot predict how an 18-year-old is going to pan out, even the high-end guys. BT has drafted well and done an amazing job getting his own players signed. They should probably take his way away his phone on July 1st, though. That's one text. This is from Mike. <laughs> uh, Brian Burke deserved to be canned just based on his drafting alone. Has always been brutal in that regard. Hunter Smith, McDonald, and Hickey over a Calgary kid in Braden Point, who is almost 40 points clear on the next guy. Come on. Um... 
Most of these guys in this draft all played in the World U-17s in Victoriaville. Ekblad was a man amongst boys at that tournament. You should check the roster on Team Ontario that year. Unbelievable how they actually ended up disappointing at that event. And I'm not saying the Panthers were wrong, much like I don't think the Flames were wrong in taking Bennett at number four. I'm not going to sit here and say the Panthers were wrong in taking Ekblad at one. He was the guy. I remember when the, because that was the year the Prospects game was played here in Calgary. And I remember seeing Ekblad at the top prospects game and doing some media prior to that. And I was like, Aaron Ekblad looks like he is a 29-year-old nightclub bouncer. Like he looked like a, <laughs> a, 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 fully, a fully developed man. He, he could bench press Buicks at the time and he was 18. Like he was the right choice at the time. Drysaddle's turned out to be the best guy in this draft. but at the, And, and Drysaddle was a very highly touted prospect at the time, but you know, the consensus was Ekblad was number one. So I'm not going to criticize the Panthers going Ekblad one either. He was a man amongst boys at the time. So that's a good text. Yeah. Well, and like, even like he won the Calder. Like if, if we were to redraft it after year one, he's still probably going first overall. It's just, there have been some incredible players who have come up and, and passed him, but no, there, there is, I, I don't think the, the Florida Panthers brass at the time should lose any sleep over drafting Aaron Ekblad first overall. Good stuff, gentlemen. Enjoyed that. We'll do 2015 likely on Thursday. Uh, revisiting the big story of the day with one important question. What exactly are the Buffalo Sabres doing right now? That's next on Pinder and Steinberg. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Back to Pinder and Steinberg. Calgary Sports Talk in the afternoon. Sportsnet 960, the fan. Guys, what are the Buffalo Sabres doing? Do they, do they have a direction? Today they fired GM Jason Botterill, which in a bubble, I think you can understand. Like in a bubble, I think you get why they might have gone that way. But um, when they then replace him with Kevin Adams, who has no GM experience, doesn't really look as smart. And from an optic standpoint, when you publicly come out to declare a little less than two weeks ago that Jason Botterill will be back as our general manager next year, and then nothing happens on the ice between then and now, and today you fire him, it looks that much more farcical. It's, it's like this team already is on the cusp of setting a new record for consecutive seasons out of the playoffs. They already have driven away some of the most loyal fans in the National Hockey League, and now they are making an absolute mess of, of their front office. Again, I'm not saying, guys, that Jason Botterill deserved this massive runway to continue building the Buffalo Sabres. I don't think he's done a very good job. Sure, make the decision to go in a different direction. But, you know, maybe don't announce two weeks prior he's coming back. Maybe don't replace him with a guy who has no GM experience. And if you're going to do that, at the very least, undergo a search before you do it. The whole thing, Klein, makes no sense to me. And that is very much on brand for the Buffalo Sabres the last number of years. Yeah, the, it would be more surprising if they, they made a move that, that seemed very rational and well thought out. This has been... Pretty well, the, the Buffalo Savers that we've come to know and love under the, the reign of, of the Pagula family as owners. I remember when they came in and it was, okay, 
we've opened up the purses. Let's get this thing going. <laughs> like Christian Ehrhoff is getting just gigantic contracts and stuff like that. And basically from then on, it, it's been uh, an unmitigated disaster. You have Jack Eichel fall in your lap, even though you were trying to be bad so hard to get Connor McDavid. You just ran into the draft lottery juggernaut that was the Edmonton Oilers. Um, but you, you have a franchise player fall into your lap and they've done nothing around it. Now, there is an opportunity this offseason, and I and this is where you can understand making a change. If you don't think Botterill's the right guy for the job, you got four forwards under contract. Eichel, Skinner, Ocposo, and Marcus Johansson. That's it. Now, there's some RFAs in there, like Sam Reinhardt, uh, Victor Olofsson. Those are guys who are going to be back for sure. But th this is a major offseason for the Buffalo Sabres to try to right the ship. The, the rebuild needs to be over. This now needs to be the time to start building uh, or to... to go beyond the building stage and start to become a contending team. And they haven't even figured out the building part of it yet. So they are in some major trouble. And if I'm a free agent going there, I have no confidence that anything is going to be done the, the way it's supposed to be. Like uh, you better be best friends with Jack Eichel. If you're going to be signing with Buffalo, because I, I'm not uh, a Buffalo um, and I know that's been a conversation on the show before, but um, I, I'm I'm gonna need to Hold know. Hold on, a you're lot saying there has been a conversation about whether or not Buffalo is a nice city to live in or not? Right. Yeah, I've 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 heard that's come up on on mm. this one before. Maybe I'm getting that mistaken. Um, I'm sure it doesn't it's lovely, sound like but... anything I've ever been a part of sitting in this <laughs> very seat. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure, and uh, I apologize for bringing that up. I, I'm clearly misreading that, but no, um, like the Buffalo ain't selling itself destination-wise, and right now there isn't a whole lot about that organization to sell people on either. So it's it's an important time, and and it's a weird time to just completely clean house on everything there. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a rough run for the Sabers, and more importantly, it's a rough run for Sabers fans. I, I don't. I don't feel all that sorry for the for for Kim and Terry Pagula. They're multi-millionaire, billionaire human beings. Like they're doing fine. But and and you know what? They shelled out their money to make sure that the um to make sure that the Sabers were in Buffalo and uh, they they shelled out their money to make sure that you know they were going to be financially viable. However, if you're a fan, it can be frustrating when your ownership group, who does not have a hockey pedigree, is extremely involved in the decision-making from a hockey standpoint. And that is what we're led to believe is happening in Buffalo. In fact, we've been led to believe... Remember the, the year they went out and made all those signings and they gave Billy Leno that ridiculous contract and they were, you know, they, they were coming back, like, we're spending money, the Sabres are back. It was right when Terry Pagula took over as the, uh, the owner of the team. This team has not been able to win with this ownership group. And if I'm an owner of a team, I've never had hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. I never will. But if I, I feel like if I could put myself in that situation, I wouldn't necessarily be okay with my business asset tanking because of my actions. I'd probably be able to be like, you know what? You've got more of a background in this. I'm going to defer to you to make these decisions. Instead, they're going in the opposite direction in Buffalo, and that's not good if you're a Sabres fan. I feel for you. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. A, a man who has, I, I, now, I, I admit, I don't necessarily know how the, the Pagulas came into the wealth that they have. I would imagine 
at some point they had to make some smart decision somewhere along the line. I can't imagine coming from that background where you've made enough money to be able to buy two professional sports teams and then see about a decade of it going so poorly with the NHL team and thinking, okay, we've gone through three GMs, a boatload of coaches. Clearly the problem is I'm not involved enough. Like, no, no, that's not it, almost exactly the opposite. It, it's, it, it would be a very helpless feeling to be a Buffalo Sabres fan and a Buffalo Sabres player. And you can understand uh, why Jack Eichel is frustrated. And I think everyone will understand when we officially get word uh, that Jack Eichel has requested a trade from the Buffalo Sabres. Well, and that's like, that's the worrisome part. If I'm a Sabres fan is that you've got this generational player who you ended up getting number two overall in a year that Connor McDavid went number one. Yes, McDavid is the better of the two players. Nobody's going to suggest otherwise, but Eichel's a pretty good player, and there's a real worry here that they could be absolutely ruining this guy's career, and or at the very least, they could be ruining the first part of his career or his tenure in Buffalo by not putting a very good team around him and by forcing the guy to want out of there. And, and if this goes on much longer... He has every right to say, okay, I've given this enough time. I sign long-term, but get me the hell out of here. And if Jeff Skinner, not Jeff Skinner, if uh, if Jack Eichel goes public with a demand to be traded, the Sabres have no choice but to trade him, do they not? Uh, yeah, like, and that's that's kind of how that, that whole thing tends to play out. You don't usually hear a guy make a trade demand and then six months later, ah, water under the bridge, it's fine. Um, so no, like that, that's, that feels like the natural progression of things. Like I, I just, I, I don't think you can look at the Buffalo, Buffalo Sabres going into next season, whenever next season is, and think this is a team that's got it. This is a team that, that's got it wrapped up. Like I'm, I'm fairly convinced we're seeing Jack Eichel in another uniform two years yeah. from now. Like, that, that's just, that's the only way this goes. And then from a Sabre standpoint, what do you do? Like, you do rebuilds, you you tank, you blow things up so you can get the exact situation they had with Jack Eichel and to waste A, his entry-level years, and now B, when you got him at 10 million bucks, there is nothing coming behind him to to kind of help boost things a little bit. There's just, there's nothing there. So, uh, like, what's, uh, unless you get the absolute mother load, which no one ever gets when they trade a star... It's just it's it's gonna get worse for the Buffalo Sabers before it gets better, and I think it get a lot worse for them. Boy, if they end up if if he ends up asking for a trade out of there, he being Jack Eichel, that could be an absolute lottery ticket for an NHL team out there. Like again, we talked about this a little earlier. If you're the Calgary Flames and Jack Eichel becomes available on the open market. You have no choice but to go all in for that guy. This is an yeah. organization that has been fighting for years to find a number one center, a true bona fide elite number one center. And if that guy, I'm not saying he's going to, and he wouldn't be the only one that would be, the Flames wouldn't be the only one who would be putting together massive offers to try and land him. But if you're the Flames and Jack Eichel is available, you better be moving heaven and earth to try to bring that guy in. Maybe not if you're the Oilers when you have McDavid and Drysaddle. Maybe not if you're the Penguins oh God, and Malcolm and Cross. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. Like there are teams that don't need to go down that road, but there are teams that do and should. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're the Flames, like you basically you make your list of, of untouchables. And uh, to be perfectly frank, when it comes to Jack Eichel, I don't know if the list is that big. Uh, and then you send the, the rest of the list to the Buffalo Sabres like, hey, pick six and we'll we'll just take Jack Eichel off your hands. Like that's that's essentially the level of player that that we're talking about here. It's like you we, this is these are all the things we're willing to give up. Take a bunch of them. And we'll we'll get your guy back. Like that's that's the type. This is a franchise altering player for most competent franchises in the National Hockey League. And it turns out that uh, the Buffalo Sabers are able to screw up a a gener- maybe not generational type talent that gets thrown around too much, but definitely an elite level franchise player. Um, it, it takes a special organization to screw <laughs> it up this bad, and the Sabers are have. doing it in spades. Uh, and in full disclosure, throughout all of this, both Logan and I have been frantically searching for the Pinder Nault Jeff Skinner fight, but we can't find that. We know it's in there somewhere. We just don't know what it's labeled as. Jay's Jay might have it in his folder. I was looking. Yeah. I just don't know. <laughs> well, Jay also, also has like three folders. Yeah, I was going to say like Jay's got sixteen folders. You're talking we're like network folders on our internal program. Jason DeForest did the. The morning show ace has literally 190 different folders, and in each folder, there's like 65,000 different things. And for him, it makes sense. He's the guy who's got to play him, so he's got his own labeling system. But for us, trying to find something on the fly that he has, it's not his fault. It's just we don't know where to find them. He's under Pinder. Is that exactly? Is it under Jeff well, Skinner? Boomer could definitely have it because he also likes oh, to, to I play. I bet it's in Boom's too, folder. So. I bet it's in boomers folder we'll look we'll do one more we'll do one more look and then we'll i I, would have been timely earlier comedy's all about timing our timing is poor but if there is one guy who is going to move heaven and earth to force something on the listeners it's this guy Uh, i will i will take (laughs) i will take ridiculous pains to make a bad analogy work and it still won't work so i'm going to look for two more seconds to see if i can find this thing and then we'll give it a, and then we'll just have to base it on the imagination. But I feel like if it's going to be anywhere, it's going to be in Boomer's folder, which again, it's all labeled, but not exactly. I don't know where it is. Uh, we gave it a, we gave it a try, guys. We gave it a try. <laughs> I don't even know why, but that makes me laugh. Um, someone on someone on the text line, someone on the text line brings up a good point, and quite frankly, it's one we should have thought of sooner. Uh, not as many opportunities to have it now, although uh, more recently there has been. Someone texting in saying Pinder Nalt fights need to be their own folder, and that's that. That's probably a fair accurate. point. It's a very yeah. fair point, uh, and and like. I won't criticize anything Boomer has in his folder because of all of us Boomer on this day. He's the comedic genius of this station. His his uh, his comedic brain I find hilarious just where he goes. So I I don't know how he would use Mambo Number Five, but I already know it would make me laugh. So I'm not going to. Uh, yeah. I just can't find the Jeff Skinner fight between Pinder and Nalt. So I think we'll have to move on, gentlemen. Good good curse stuff, and then Jay's got his. There's this. No 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 no. There's some good stuff in Boomer's folder. Anywho, we yep. tried. Uh, good stuff, gentlemen. Uh, Mr. Klein, have yourself a wonderful rest of your Tuesday. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Sounds good. Have a good one, guys.